Hello guys, Jack here from Jack Makes Happy Hour podcast. And yes, the rumours are true. We're heading back out on tour in May 2024. 68% of the tickets are already sold out, but there are still a few left at Edinburgh, Newcastle, Manchester, Birmingham, Leeds, Cardiff, Sheffield, Nottingham, Bristol, Bury, and our home city of Norwich. So don't waste any time. Grab your tickets today and come and watch me, Alfie and Robbie live. And me. Mainly me, Alfie and Robbie, though, isn't it? Yeah. Happyhourlive.co.uk. See you in May. Who have we got coming up today? Stephen White. Today we have Dr. Shaham Das. And he is a forensic psychiatrist. So let me tell you, Happy Hour listeners, it gets a little bit deep today, doesn't it? It gets deep and incredibly interesting i think this was one of those episodes where jack and i kind of went off script for most of it and just kept asking what came to our silly minds he's a super super smart guy as you can imagine which comes with the job title i think we ask the exact kind of questions that you guys are going to want to know we spoke about some real very intense and dark cases such as gypsy rose blanchard and lucy letby we spoke about how a lot of top ceos they portray potential psychopathic tendencies steve jobs name comes up uh, mark zuckerberg's name comes up uh, are they psychopaths do you have to be to run a global empire we also spoke about what actually happens inside mental asylums i found that particularly interesting i found the whole thing interesting <laughs> we spoke about mental illness in cinema joker shutter island and loads and loads of other films but guys as you can imagine this episode does get a little bit heavy in parts dr shaham das works with real patients that are mentally unwell so there are themes of murder self-harm mental illness, suicide, and real-life true crime cases. So if any of those themes are something that are potentially triggering for you or something you can't listen to currently, then uh, feel free to give this episode a miss and come back on Monday when we'll be with the boys chatting absolute waffle as we usually do. But these, Stevie, I think you agree, these are some of our favourite type of guest episodes, aren't they? Yeah, I absolutely loved it. It was, what, two hours long, and Mm. I loved every moment in the studio with him. Yeah, perfect. So, guys, enjoy this two-hour-long chat with forensic psychiatrist Dr. Shaham Das. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hello guys, welcome back to Jack Mate's Happy Hour podcast. I'm here with my left-hand man, Stevie White. Hello. Looking good, you're losing weight. <laughs> <laughs> how, how have you 
said that and made it sound like an insult. I didn't mean it to be an insult. I mean, like, this year, you're only drinking water. <laughs> well, yeah, I have done since the start of the year. You've been going gym a lot? Yeah. You're looking very good. Thank you. But you're not looking quite as dapper as our guest. Oh, God. Our guest today... Right, Stevie, before I introduce who he is and what he's about, I'm a bit nervous. Why are you nervous? Because you can get in the minds of people. Yeah. It's Dr. Shahom Das, and he is a consultant forensic psychiatrist who works with mentally ill criminals. Is that correct, sir? That is correct, yeah. Lovely to be on. Thank you. What? What? What is that, first of all? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is that? Uh, right, so a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who specialises in mental illness. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows that. A forensic psychiatrist like myself does that, but it's for people who have either committed severe violence or who have committed severe violence and either have been arrested or uh, are on remand or on trial and they either definitely have a mental illness or we suspect they have a mental illness. So I try and figure out what that mental illness is how to rehabilitate them, how to treat them. Basically. Wow, what an interesting job. Do you love it? I love bits of it. There's a lot of admin and a lot of paperwork. So for every one case that I see, with like for every hour that I spend with the individual in prison, which is the interesting bit, yeah. the evidence, there's probably eight, nine, ten hours where I'm sat in a coffee shop looking through medical notes. So The bit that we don't see. Yeah. yeah. The behind the scenes stuff can be a bit tedious, especially when there's like, when somebody's been in, in and out of hospital for years and there's like literally thousands of notes to go through. It's right. That bit I don't love. But the actual... The, the piecing together the puzzle bit I love, yeah. I'm super excited for this, aren't you? Yeah, I am. There's also, uh, I don't know what you'd class this brain as, but that is a puzzle. So I'm interested <laughs> to see what you think of him throughout this. Well, I'll take notes throughout and I'll come back. <laughs> Are you a psychopath? Let's find <laughs> <out>. <laughs> Probably got elements. We did, didn't we do, on an episode years ago, didn't we did a, a psychopath test, but it's one of these novelty ones that you, you get online. How accurate are they? Um, I suppose they're as accurate as the peop as the information that's put into them, right? right. So um, I'll answer that a different way. So when I'm seeing an individual patient that's in one of these secure units and I have to see if, they, if I can diagnose them as psychopathy or not, we have the psychopathy checklist and you've probably done a version of that. Asking the questions is relatively easy, but actually knowing whether the information is accurate or not is trickier. So you don't just take them at space value. You look at all their background information. You get objective evidence, ideally, from like an ex-partner or a relative. Uh, you look at previous medical reports. So if you do all of that, then right. it's very accurate. But if you don't, if you just sort of answer questions quite superficially, then it's not accurate. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into your work. You, do, you don't just give your patients a BuzzFeed quiz, do you? <laughs> right we always start with the same way dr das we would like to know what you would put in the happy hour hall of fame so it's a fictional place okay. far far away or as close as right here in front of your heart and you can submit an item a place a person a feeling a thing to the happy hour hall of fame what would you like to put in there okay it doesn't have to uh, be related to my profession no, no, anything you no, want yeah good because i don't really have anything physical that represents my profession mm -hmm. and be like vanessa freak has uh, <laughs> <laughs> in the post i don't know um, done your research i like this <laughs> and can we just say as well a little look behind the curtain um one of or potentially the only guest to come bearing gifts. So thank you for the muffins. It's very sweet. And <laughs> um, I think in terms of physical possessions, the thing that I, that I am, I wouldn't say the proudest because I only bought it, but the thing that I enjoy the most is my full-size Street Fighter 2 arcade that I've got at home. So... Uh, it's one of the very few things that I've actually argued with my wife openly about. So when she makes the decisions where anything goes in the house, I always listen to her. I got this thing. So well, I ordered it off the internet, right? And it had the inch sides 
And I thought that it'd be about this big, but it was actually the inside screen. So it's like literally that big. Oh, wow. We got it. She was like, well, that's going in the outhouse, like, <laughs> pool table and all that other stuff. Um, and I was like, no, I really think this is like a centerpiece. I think people of a certain age, especially men, love it. <laughs> and so I put my foot down and it is there like in the middle of our sort of kitchen, in the corner of our kitchen. And it's good. It's a like centerpiece for people to come in and, and like men, especially like in their forties, you can see them sort of eyeing it, eyeing it up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you have like kids' birthday parties and stuff like that. That's super. Bam, Superb. I like it. It's in there. Did you ever play it? Street Fighter, yeah. yeah. I think they're up to like number six now or something. It's obviously changed a lot since then. Is it like the full on <coughs> old? Oh. Yeah, yeah. So like joysticks and everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's got 1800 games on it. So it's like a. Oh, so it's not even just Street Fighter. I'm sure it's illegal. It's like. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> uh, the outside it has like Street Fighter characters, but I think that it's all like knockoff counterfeit. That's unreal. We're putting Big it in fan there. Of that. We're putting Big it fan. in there. Now, before we get into psychiatry and all the stuff that's inside the mind, we want to get inside your mind, Shaham, and we are going to hit you with some quick fire questions to get to know the man behind the forensic psychiatrist, Stevie. Kick us off. What is the weirdest app on your phone? <laughs> the weirdest app. So I've got all these. We, basically, to entertain my kids, I've got things like Crossy Roads. You know Crossy Roads? Yeah, I've, pl- I've played Crossy Roads. What? Okay. What is it? A game. It's, is it good? Yeah, it's kind of like a new version of Frogger. Yeah. Okay. Be the easiest way to describe Cross, it. Crossy Roads. Crossy you Roads. You put a Y decent. on the end of any word, I'm already interested. <laughs> makes it cute. What, it's, any word? It's a very simple game, isn't it? Like, so yeah. like Frogger, you just keep sort of pressing this little chicken that has to cross the roads. Uh, and I... So my kids are eight and 10 now. So I had it on when they were toddlers, when they were like, you know, getting agitated at lunch or whatever mm. with people, you just give them the iPhone and it kind of keeps them occupied. So the thing, I think the things that, that, cons- that surprised me about Crossy Road and worried me was how quickly my kids managed to do better than me. Mm-hmm. So like get a high score. Like I can get maximum hundred points on that game. Cameron can get like easily 350. Oh, wow. But, but can he beat you at Street Fighter? Uh, no. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> you sometimes get lucky if you just Google <laughs> I've never played it. Never played Street Never Fighter. played it. Is it like Tekken? The, the style game, uh, two, Mortal Kombat. Two, like 2D, like... The old school ones. Yeah, so you guys are, what, your 20s? 30. 30, 30 yeah. yeah. Both 30, yeah. And 45, right. So Street Fighter 2. You look so good for 45. Thank you. It's annoying. Wow. Cause, what a handsome man. That's annoying because he's 15 years older than me and you started by going, you don't look as good as this man. <laughs> <laughs> fine, it's fine. You I had understand. a rough paper round though, didn't you? <laughs> I think it's a healthy living. <laughs> but um, yeah, so f- for me, Street Fighter 2, I remember I was what, 12, 13 when it came out? It was mm. mind blowing. It's so much more advanced than any other game before it. Yeah. It's probably not the same for you. Like you'd be impressed if you saw it, but yeah. compared to what you grew up with, I imagine playing video games, it's probably not that big a step up. I've never had, never had a go. I've Did you ever play go. Mortal Kombat? That was my one. I was nah. all over Mortal Kombat. Nah. Didn't really play any games, apart from... Until Call of Duty. Call of Duty. And, and Habbo Hotel. Habbo Hotel, which we won't get into. What was the last series you binge-watched? <clears throat> um, I think I re-watched Jessica Jones with my wife. That's the last one that I saw. The last one I saw that I rate that I really enjoyed was The Boys. You know, uh, I like the boys. Is that the one where they all have superpowers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. you haven't really. seen either, have you, Jessica Jones or the boys? Have you seen both? Yeah. 
This man here has watched like every series. Well, they're both superhero things. Jessica Jones is Marvel, and oh, The Boys yeah. is its own thing. The Boys is just mental, though. Yeah. Like it's mm-hmm. Jack doesn't like any film, series, whatever, TV, if it couldn't happen in real life. So the <laughs> yeah. thought of superpowers, <laughs> I'm weird, gone. But I don't know if this uh, tempts you or not, Jack. But it's it, it is obviously set in a fantasy world. But it's like what would actually really happen if real. So it's about power corrupting. That's what it's actually about. Okay, people who are. Like the supposed heroes of the boys are actually really twisted, maniacal, depraved, like quite psychopathic as well. But I quite like it. it. They're yeah. Hard. So on the face of it, they're they're like Superman. Or the, the main character Homeland is like Superman, but behind the scenes, he's just like an evil, twisted bastard. That's what makes it so good. Yeah, I do like. And it. it's gruesome. Like yeah. people are exploding, blood everywhere. Like it's it's quite intense. I actually do like. Genuinely do like the sound of that. Give it a go. Honestly, yeah. it's really good. It starts like straight away. First scene, just wow, cool. Oh, hang on. Fee, did we put this on once? Uh, (laughs) Is it something to do with, and I could be completely wrong here, but does someone get split in half? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that happens. I think that happens in a thing. I think one of the first things, this is a spoiler for the first episode, but beyond that, the main character's girlfriend gets killed pretty much straight away because there's a guy called A-Train whose ability is running super fast and he's going to something and she steps out on the street and he just runs through her and she explodes. Fair enough. enough. Shaham, do you like true crime? Because obviously... (laughs) That's a good segue in the chat. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I do to a degree. So, right, so I, I, I talk at, at this um, true crime event called CrimeCon. That's actually how I, how I met Vanessa in the first place. Uh, and I am nowhere near as a big fanboy of true crime as the people that come there. So look, they will, I'll, I'll give talks then, they'll come up and they'll, and they'll ask me my opinion on what do you think about this serial killer and this murder and murderer. I haven't heard of half of them. So I'm not like a, a really strong true crime fan, but occasionally there have been documentaries that come across my radar that I think are really well made. Right. Um, so we were talking earlier about American Nightmare. That was pretty good. It was amazing. Mm. Tinder, Swindle, Tinder Swindler, I thought was really well made. Uh, so to answer your question, I am to a degree. I wouldn't say it's one of my main interests. Yeah. They were made by things. the same people, weren't they? Tinder uh, Swindler yes. and American mm. Nightmare, yeah. yeah. It's interesting because you obviously work like like personally with mentally unwell people. So yeah. these documentaries, like I always find like, it's, it's like, because we've, it's like, I don't know would I enjoy something that I do all the time anyway? Does that make sense? Well, you listen to other podcasts, don't you? Yeah, but if there was one that was super similar to ours... You would you wouldn't I, Like, care. I wouldn't listen to a podcast that, um, like, has... Well, we've, we've just filmed an episode with Stumpeg. I don't think if a, a podcast came out in the next year with Stumpeg, I would listen to it. No. Because you should You've do it. done it, yeah. Yeah. So one other thing I'd say is that true crime is quite hard to sort of dip in and out of quickly. Mm. So I watch YouTube all the time and I'll watch stuff like battle raps or stand-up comedy because you can watch like five minutes or 10 minutes and that's it. Mm. With a proper true crime documentary where they're setting it all up and trying to, you know, uh, suggest who the different culprits might be and then throw off the viewer. Mm. It's, it's a, like a, it's a commitment, isn't it? It's like 45 minutes an hour minimum, if not. Yeah, because they're so dramatised as well, aren't they? They can't just let you know all the information in an mm. hour. They're like, this is going to be spread out over at least three parts. So you're almost committing to, if I'm going to watch this, I know that's three hours of my life that I'm putting into it. Mm. Yeah. Fair enough. What is your earliest memory? <clears throat> What's my earliest memory? Um, so I, it's not particularly exciting, but I vaguely remember picking up, I must have been about four or five. I was in my back garden uh, where I used to live in Windsor, and I picked up a ladybird, and I just remember it crawling across my finger and flying off. And I remember being really shocked because I didn't know that ladybirds could fly. It's 
That's a really cute answer. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. What's your biggest pet peeve? Biggest pet peeve? Um, I think that it is... I think it's when people don't follow through on what they say they're going to do or like say they're going to send me an email and don't do it or just anything where somebody is, is supposed it says they do something they don't do it mm-hmm. uh it happens in my line of work with you know clients solicitors other psychiatrists but it happens more in my media endeavors i think a lot of people are always really enthusiastic and say like we'll look at these ideas and we'll, we'll call you back and so i've had like umpteen chats with producers and everyone's like really friendly and enthusiastic and then they say they'll check out my material and get back to me and mm-hmm. I, just to be 100 clear i'm absolutely fine with somebody saying it's not really for me i'm not really that interested that i don't mind that at all yeah it's the opposite is when they when they kind of say that they're going to do something promise the world and exactly yeah yeah that happens all the time in the media. So a lot of that isn't there the amount of times that we we reach out to guests and they say that we'll come on on this date and then two days before it's like can't do it for whatever reason then you never hear of them again yeah. so now stevie um can you explain this the big red button button so the big red button at the end of each get to know with our guests we're now going to allow a previous guest to ask our current guest a question of their own so when you press that big red button it's going to set off this ball machine that you can see behind us (laughs) and a guest that we've had on on the previous season is going to ask you the next question so feel free to press the button (laughs) oh it's working it's working Oh, God. is it? Give us a ball. There <laughs> it is. <laughs> You'd be surprised how temperamental that is. I need to stress, Jack and I have not seen any of these questions, so we do not know what's coming. We're yeah. going to allow... Shaham to yeah? open it, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... You need to open it. Well, look, they can be tricky. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want any guest to be embarrassed by not being able to open it. Stevie, I'm nervous about this. Oh, please don't be... <laughs> is it actually is it actually do you watch porn no no what what right we're gonna have to explain something here because this happened before the podcast started oh my god this is not a stitch up i promise i promise it's not a stitch up right so we have about 30 40 questions in there listeners right and as stevie said we genuinely haven't seen any, I cannot believe it. We genuinely haven't seen any of these questions. Um, they get wrapped up by the guests and they get put into the ball machine. We don't see them. The one, the one that we saw was Michael Van Gerwen's because it was so weird. And it's, do, yeah, do you watch porn? Michael Van Gerwen. So we put it in anyway to honor it. And I said to Shahom before we started recording, there's one that's fucking weird. And if it comes <laughs> out, we'll redo it. We're not actually going to answer that. And we're going to throw this question away. It's probably a good thing that we've got it yeah, out now. Sorry, so. sorry, MVG, but... Um, it's a weird question. <laughs> it's a weird question. Shall we get a different ball? Let's reload it. Let's do it again. Oh my word. Did you think we were stitching you up for a second? <laughs> oh, two. Two questions. Okay, the one's going back. There we are. Okay. Pass it over. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> They're just all filled with MVG. <laughs> <laughs> is this more a bit. Is this one okay? Do you watch porn? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, from Alex Zane. What is your unpopular movie opinion? There we oh. go. A film that's rubbish that you love, for example. Okay, I'm sure there's loads of these. The one that comes to mind, you know Wolverine Origins? 
Yeah. Everyone slags it off. Everyone says it's like really shit and it got something like 40% Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's a decent film. Is that the one with Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool for the first time? Right at the end? Or is uh, that a different... Yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and he's fighting Sabretooth and there's yeah. loads going on up there. And conversely, everyone seems to rate Logan, you know, the, mm-hmm. the last one where he loses his powers and he dies. Yeah. I just think that was a really boring movie. Because, You're not a fan of Logan? No, no because it's really depressing. I I'm not saying that really, like, there's a, an issue with a movie being depressed, depressing in general, but it's a superhero film. I don't want, to, I don't want it to be like a, a really dark, deprived tale of somebody sort of losing their power and eventually dying. And also he doesn't have powers for almost all of it. Mm. So I don't want to watch a super, superhero film. Where he's not even a superhero. Exactly, especially with a character as cool as Wolverine. I want him to be able to do all the Wolverine shit and, and heal and stuff like that. So You seem to have a massive love for superhero films and TV and whatever. Do you think that's just because it takes you so far away from the reality of life, especially when yours can be quite dark, the things you're looking into? Honestly, no. I think I've just got a slightly... Uh, immature, immature taste and sense of humor. So. I'm exactly the same, so I'm, I'm all over that. Street Fighter in the kitchen. So, you know, Street Fighter, I mentioned before, I listen to, you know, one of my favourite things about Battle Rap Watch is stand-up, so when I go to psychiatry conferences, I have different interests to most of my peers, let's put it that way. Oh, I like that. I always yeah. have, I don't think it's got anything to do with my job. Like. Yeah, love it. I'm, I'm, I, I kind of wish that I enjoyed superhero movies, but I just Calm. Give the boys a go and then come the back. Go. Is that like dipping your toe in the water? Like if you like that, then... <laughs> it's, a, it's yeah. It's just more. It's more of a reality as to what could genuinely. Ha- if there was a way of giving people superpowers, yeah, this would be potentially how it would go down. Is Joker <clears throat> a superhero movie? Yeah. I think that's borderline. Well, it's it's, it's um. It's a super villain origin story, isn't it? Yeah. It's probably just about in the genre, but I don't really have any powers. Yeah, there's no, no powers That's one of my favourite movies. Yeah, yeah, I love, I love Joker. But then yeah. I guess you like... YouTube video about that as well. Ha- have yeah, you? Send you the link. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, I'm 100% Psychoanalyzed, like, how he became the Joker from a, from a forensic psychiatrist. We've got a few questions about that later on. You don't mind Batman either, do you? Because he doesn't have powers. So you quite like the Dark Knight, don't yeah, you? Yeah, he's just like a sort of rich Tory, isn't he? Yeah, big fan. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> what do you think of, have you seen The Batman, the new one with... Uh, Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson, yeah. No, is it good? No, I thought it was really dull, really dull. Really? I really like the Christopher Nolan ones. But this one, I just thought it was really boring. I never watched it because I heard a lot of people just say it was really dark. So I was like, I can't bother. The worst film I think I've ever seen in the cinema was Batman versus Superman. Because it was just two hours of... <laughs> Just that. All of a sudden. Say can't. something. Have a narrative. He says, Martha. It was just for I, I would have had as much fun. Watch, I'd have had more fun going outside the local Weatherspoons and watching two drunk people scrap. Generally, <laughs> <laughs> I think I would have. Fair enough. But, but let's move on from movies. Let's move on to you, sir, okay. and your life. Uh, as we explained, you're a consultant forensic psychiatrist and you did give us a, a sort of brief description of what that is. Can you tell us in detail, like, what's, what's your day-to-day? What's, what is your job? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's different environments that forensic psychiatrists work in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say the three main ones are uh, within prisons, within psychiatry units, and as an expert witness in court. So mm-hmm. I've, worked, I've been an iteration of all of those things in the past, but right now I'm doing expert witness work because I just personally find it the most interesting. So what would happen is that if somebody's on trial, if they either definitely have or are suspected of having a mental illness, then their defense team, the defense always gets to go first. So they find a psychiatrist such as myself. I've been doing this for about 10 years. So I've got good relationships with certain solicitors. So they will reach out to me. They'll send me a case. They'll say, you know, this is what we think is going on. Uh, and they'll send me all the information and I can accept or reject a case. 
give them a quote, number of hours, blah, blah, blah. Less often are get instructed by the CPS. So that's the other side, the prosecution. The reason why it's less often is because defense always gets to go first. And it's only if the psych- if the CPS doesn't agree with that report that they want their own opinion. So it's actually a very small proportion of cases, maybe 10% of cases. Yeah. Uh, so I say yes or no, uh, depending on how interesting the case is, what my workload's like, how far it is as well. Uh, and then what I will do is I will look at all the information. So I look at all the evidence from witness statements, CCTV footage of, of the incident, um, the police transcripts of the interview when the person's been arrested. So I've got a picture of what their mental state was like. Then I assess them. It used to be in person, but I have to say since COVID, a lot of it is, is remote now. So so prisons have their own sort of secure version of Skype, uh, which is good in a way because it's more convenient for me because you don't have to mess around waiting to get into prisons, which is an absolute ball lake. It's like mm. getting into an airport. It's that kind of level oh, really? of security and right. time. Uh, but it also means you don't have the the kind of feel of sitting in the room with somebody mm-hmm. uh, unless I request to do that specifically. So anyway, so I will assess them, have a, uh, basically do a mental state examination as a psychiatrist, try and tease out the symptoms. Then I'll write a really detailed court report and if the other side don't accept it then i'll uh, which is quite rare actually then i'll be called up to give evidence in court that's basically it i don't i don't know if this is a stupid question but what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist (laughs) yeah not a stupid question (laughs) sounded like you were going yeah that's (laughs) fucking ridiculous how dare you ask me that i'll leave you guys carry on (laughs) um so it's a big overlap, right? So psychiatrists such as myself are doctors first. Uh, to go to medical school, you have to qualify as a doctor. You have to work a couple of years as a junior doctor outside of any subspecialty. And then you can specialise. As you'll know, there is like, you know, surgery, GP, oncology. There's all different specialties. Psychiatry is a specialty of medicine. Uh, and then once you've done that, once you've started training that, you can subspecialise the different subspecialties of psychiatry. Forensics, being offenders was what I do. Child and adolescent, old age psychiatry, suicide attempts, which is like liaison psychiatrists, lots of different types. Uh, whereas a psychologist doesn't learn about the whole human conditions. They're not medical doctors. They only deal with emotional issues. I'd say that psychiatrists only deal with mental illness. So we will deal with anything from schizophrenia to you know depression, suicide attempts, bipolar. Whereas psychologists can do mental illness, but you, they also deal in emotions. So it could be you know, confidence building, sports psychology is a huge one, uh, grief. So they're not mental illnesses. They're just the human condition. In terms of our powers and abilities, psychiatrists can do more, I think it's fair to say. So I, I can prescribe medication. I can section somebody. <laughs> you just pointed that out for the audio <laughs> listeners. <laughs> that's not spasm that I, I, think that's, I think that's mainly at you. But... <laughs> I haven't decided yet. <laughs> well, psychologists don't have the power to detain uh, people. I'd say that psychologists generally have more time with their patients. So they're the ones that would sit down on a, well, actually sat on a couch, but would sit down in a room with you for an hour a week and talk about your problems. Whereas psychologists, a bit like a GP, they kind of oversee your mental health. They might prescribe, but they don't generally have the time to sit down with you for hours at a time because our patient, our caseload is so much bigger. So, so you mentioned there that you had to do, um, do like um, doctor school. Right? <laughs> <laughs> study. Um, study. Not just yeah, study. Yeah, um, which is like the sort of like broad, broad spectrum of it. And then you find your specialist after yeah, yeah. that. Um, how far through that process did you realise... Or, or did you go into it knowing where you wanted to sort of end up where you are now or did you learn that along the way yeah the honest truth is I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do going into uh, university so I went to Edinburgh Medical School 
to be blunt with you guys, I didn't take it particularly seriously. I just kind of coasted through, failed quite a few exams. Didn't have to reset a year um, because I just about passed all my research. Coasting through medical school is still probably better than the majority of people who couldn't even get into medical school. Yeah, but you can, you can, if you cram, you can get a lot. You can, you can just about pass exams if you cram without actually learning any of the source material. Right. Which I learned at my, because in your finals, you can get asked anything about anything. So when I got to my finals in year five, in my fifth year and I got through about halfway through my fifth year, this is a bit of an aside, and I was doing like a clinical attachment. I was a medical student with this junior doctor and she was asking me, I remember this like stuff about reading ECGs, chest x-rays. I didn't know any of it because I crammed for my exams for years. And she basically said, there's no way you're going to pass your exams. Like you're probably one of the worst medical students. I've ever seen. Oh, wow. And it was just such a wake up call to me. And I, I just went home and I was like, she's, she's right. I can't remember any of this stuff because I crammed because, you know, my memory's not amazing. Yeah. And I did just, just the minimal amount. So I just kicked myself up the ass and I spent six months like studying all the time every day to basically make up for four and a half years of not studying. Yeah. Uh, so I managed to pass my exams. Um, but yeah, sorry to answer your question, Jack. I, I didn't really connect or feel passionate about anything to do with medical school until I did psychiatry, which is in my fourth year. Uh, so I worked in a, in a psychiatric ward in Edinburgh and I just found it really interesting to talk to the people that were there. So for a start, you get a, a massive range of patients. So if you go to a, like a cardiology ward, they're pretty much all going to have very similar things. You might have one young person with like a rare cardiac disease, but 90% of the people are going to be elderly people with heart disease. You know, it's, it's very, very similar. Yeah. Whereas on a psychiatry ward, you have everything. You have like, you know, suicide attempts I mentioned before, eating disorders, people with schizophrenia, people with like paranoid delusions, people with post-traumatic stress disorder, just such a sort of rich, um, diverse presentation. So that's mm-hmm. one thing. Another thing is that it's just fascinating because you get to ask them anything you want about their background. Just like you can ask me anything as a guest in your podcast, but you can't do that in real life to somebody you just met. Mm. Most doctors can't really ask personal questions about a background whereas a psychiatrist you know for the right reasons can mm. you really get to know the individuals and if i'm being honest another reason that i went into it was because this psychiatrist is really nice they're a lot friendlier and nicer than for example surgeons who are like and a lot of my friends are surgeons now but they didn't they try, treat us like shit when we're medical students because mm. they're so busy and it's so intense that we're just an inconvenience to them we're not somebody they want to teach mm. whereas psychiatrists that i've worked with especially when i was a medical student have always been really approachable and friendly that made me want to learn about it when you when you tell people um <coughs> what you do and you've got a great youtube channel where you you speak about all sorts of um which by the way can i just say your youtube channel name is one of the best <laughs> names for a youtube channel can you tell our, our listeners what it, what, what it is because it's brilliant a psych for sore minds good isn't it i do like that two, two puns in one i like yeah. that <laughs> two <laughs> smart man i'm a sucker for a pun so if you double pun me i love it <laughs> double pun me do, do you find that when you tell people what you do they see the kind of like and this there's definitely the wrong word but the kind of like glamour of it um like the seediness like the the true crime aspect to it yeah yeah uh, uh, what's been one uh, i'm butchering this question but what's been like <laughs> biggest a, misconception um no like what's a fun ca- case i don't know if i'm if that's harsh to say because obviously there's a lot of people that go but what's a right let me let me write that <laughs> are I, you trying to <laughs> ask so you clip that out because i get another the, question from yeah. trying to ask yeah. you know when you go up to someone and go what's your favorite true crime case yeah but you're going oh, should you have a favorite like or what's your, who's your favorite that's, serial that's killer kind of yeah I but you're into... trying to go what's a case that you are very very interested by yeah. that you worked on yeah. even though it's dark yeah but not fun 
We don't yeah. use the word fun. Yeah, because because later on we're going to be talking about the, the ball end. didn't even come out. <laughs> yeah, it was just like you sort yourself out. Mate. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like because later on we're going to be talking about Shaham's like um, biggest sort of craziest cases and stuff. But I just want to just like right off the bat just say give us an, like an example of like some of the stuff you'll be tackling. Okay, just if a that brief makes sense. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can do that. Fucking hell, three and a half minutes to ask that one question. <laughs> We're getting good at this. It's only been five years. <laughs> five four hundred episodes, and that's how we are. Sorry, go. Okay, uh, I can't narrow it down to one, but I can give you a very quick summary of a few of them. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay so one that uh, I've made videos about that really sticks sticks in my mind simply because I've had very similar cases to her is a woman called Andrea Yates. This is a tragic case. I probably should give a uh, a viewer discretion warning to your viewers. So she. Uh, in 2001, I believe, in Texas, she killed her five children. She was completely psychotic. She had a history of mental illness. She had schizophrenia. Uh, there was loads of really bad treatment that she got from her previous psychiatrists. They basically didn't take her concerns or her presentations particularly seriously. They made stupid decisions like taking her off medication um, without like doing any follow-up to mm. check how she was. And she became psychotic and she drowned and killed all of her, individ her children individually. Didn't try and hide it. She literally phoned the police afterwards and, and said that she'd done this because she had these delusional beliefs about... Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. The children being marked by the devil, and I've seen two well i'd say actually three cases very similar to that in my career not i haven't killed five children but I've killed one kid each mm. so that is something that really sort of sticks in my mind is it's kind of that's the reason that i do what i do because when you've got somebody that's that vulnerable that's that mentally ill right obviously there, there needs to be consequences they need to go into hospital i'm not saying they should be released I'm yeah not but i also don't think they should go in prison because she's mentally ill she needs like treatment she is suffering from symptoms that can be can be relieved and i think as a society we have an obligation to try and treat that so that's one that mm -hmm. jumps out to me um <clears throat> Anders Brevik so you know the guy yeah, he, know yeah. The name. He, um, in Norway yeah yeah the reason I find him fascinating is because there's a bit of a, a schism between psychiatrists of what his diagnosis is so some people say that he doesn't have any sort of psychotic illness so he's not out of touch with reality he's just a nasty piece of work probably got a personality disorder but he's not you know he's in he knew what he was doing mm -hmm. whereas other psych interestingly when he was initially assessed the two psychiatrists I believe it's two uh, from Norway said that he was actually psychotic. He did have psychotic beliefs. And I think, I, don't, I can't prove this, but I think that that's so unpalatable because what he did was just so horrific that I think the courts basically said, we don't really like that opinion. Let's just get him reassessed until we get the opinion that we want. Oh, really? That's what I think happened because it just, just seems weird to me that the diagnosis suddenly changed. Right. So I'm, I'm fascinated by that case. Obviously, I've never assessed him, but I'd love to just you know, get to assess him in person and see what I think. Do you, did you have any sort of more quote-unquote normal jobs before you went into this um i mean so i worked as a junior doctor in a few different specialties so i did a e for a year i worked on medical wards uh before that i was an auxiliary nurse so i did that in the holidays okay money so just like i think they call them healthcare assistants now mm. i've worked in a pub for the summer before i went to uni and that's the only jobs that i've done yeah see this is what fascinates me because you deal with such extreme <laughs> and complex cases now like how do you sort of how do you become sort of 
bat already, if you, if you know what I mean, from going from a pub and being a junior doctor to then sitting down with with these criminals that have committed such sort of like heinous crimes. Yeah, um, I'm not sure there's really an answer to that. You just got to have a certain disposition. I think it's fair to say. Mm. So, I think that a lot of doctors are not particularly that interested in psychiatry because it it feels probably wishy wishy washy compared to something as as very kind of regimented and clear as, as surgery or medicine number one and then forensic psychiatry i'd say is even harder is even more kind of marmite because you're dealing with you know damaged and sometimes angry aggressive people mm. so you have to have a certain disposition to be able to kind of face that in the first place right from the individuals but also knowing the heinous things they've done from killing strangers to you know sexually abusing children mm. um so to answer your question you just gotta be you, you've got you've got to be sort of ready for that and i suppose i because i get to read all the case notes and everything i kind of know what's happened to a degree mm. that makes sense i'm yeah. completely blind when i'm going into an assessment i know what they've done yeah it's not like i find out when i see them face to face what they've done i've already got all the details in advance is it is it then hard to <laughs> remove your personal sort of emotions when you meet someone like is it before you answer that actually shaham it is if somebody gets like a not guilty but by reason of insanity yeah is that is that them getting a lesser sentence then sort of thing? Uh, no, not quite. So that is that is one of the exact psychiatric uh, defences that I give evidence for. And it is very rare. That's the first thing I'd say. So probably when I'm asked to assess it, I probably only agree with that defence in maybe 5-10% of the cases. So oh, okay. the vast majority of the time I'd say that psychiatric defence isn't open. Uh, but no, so it means that you're not guilty in the eyes of the law. But if you've done something, if you're still risky, if you're deemed to be a risk, so I already mentioned, you know, I've assessed women who kill their own children, mm. then they would be, upon my evidence, they'd be sectioned to a mental health unit, so a secure hospital. So you're not guilty. So it doesn't go on your medical records. You don't, you don't technically get punished, but you get sectioned to a hospital for the, for long-term rehabilitation. And the amount of time you're in hospital is completely up to the forensic psychiatrist who looks after you. So if you get better really, really quickly, potentially could be released within a year or two if you've got like andrea yates a good example she's she's got a really treatment resistant disorder so even after years and years of medication she's not improved very much so she's been in for, for since 2001 and in fact as a bit of an aside she actually could have been released a couple of years ago but she asked to stay in i think probably because she's got all these you know guilty feelings and doesn't want to be let out in the community but the point i was trying to make mm. is that the length of stay in one of these hospitals is completely unrelated to a sentence for punishment it's all to do with how quickly you're rehabilitated Wow, I found it fascinating, don't you? Yeah. What's the toughest moment you've experienced in the courtroom? No, that was what I was <laughs> going to ask you, wasn't it? Um, yeah. So, so if is it hard to leave your emotions at the door when you're when you're meeting people like this? Because you know how like are you here, child killer? You you instantly you <laughs> feel all these negative connotations to to that, which is is, is correct way to feel. But yeah, can you park can you park them and? and go in with your work mind? Yeah. Um, the honest answer is I think I'm, I'm exceptionally good at separating those two things. And I don't think the logical thing would, would be to say that, you know, I've been doing this for years and I've become hardened. That's not actually the truth. The truth is I've always been able to do that. I've always been maybe very mildly psychopathic. So I'm just able to, I don't get bothered emotionally by things. I don't get easily stressed out. I don't have that much of a fear response, I think. Uh, and so that's one thing. That's my natural personality. The other thing is I'm very clear in my mind what my role is, right? So my role is never to decide if somebody's guilty or innocent. It's only to decide, it's only to help the court understand their psychiatric problems. Mm -hmm. So do they have a mental illness? Yes or no. If they did, did they have symptoms at the time of the killing or whatever the offence is? Yes or no. If they did have symptoms, did it affect their criminal culpability? So did they know what they were doing or not? Yes or no. And if 
any if if they're not criminally responsible then what kind of hospital do they need to go to what level of security i have to make the, those decisions outside of that i am very aware that nothing else is up to me right so because i know that and i go into an assessment thinking that i, I don't perseverate on the hor horrific things they do i have faith in the court system that the judge will do his job and mm -hmm. the jury will do their job but and i think most forensic psychiatrists are like me but i've definitely seen some who are very emotionally attached to cases either because the perpetrator's done something horrific like killed a stranger or, or you know abused a child mm. or actually conversely because the perp the um the offender is actually quite vulnerable like these women who you know are facing life sentences but are clearly mentally ill right how much time do you tend to spend with a patient like are you are you with them for quite a long period or do you just have a set load of questions that you need to get answered and then then move on yeah so in the work that i do now as an expert witness when i assess them for a court report for evidence it's a fairly short period of time i'd say maybe one hour for most cases maybe two hours for a murder case because you just have to go in so much more detail but in a previous iteration like when i worked in these secure units uh it would be so it'd be that person's journey further down the line so if they don't go to prison they go to hospital i'm the person in charge to rehabilitate them obviously i've got a team of nurses psychologists and you know um, occupational therapists etc uh, but then you get to know them in intimately so they're on the ward for typically two three four years sometimes longer than that and as a psychiatrist i wouldn't go on the ward every single day because i'd have clinics and prison visits and stuff but i'd probably see them once or twice a week over a really long period of time so you get to know them really intimately you get to meet their family and, and that's part of their rehabilitation have you ever found yourself actually liking people that you know have done bad things because obviously you're only seeing this version of them you're not seeing the version that did something horrific yeah. so have you ever found yourself thinking oh they actually seem like a nice person yeah yeah so I would say that this, this is a really sort of simplistic way of looking at it, but it, it kind of helps summarize things is that you get people who have like a, a psychotic disorder where they do something that's completely out of character, like Andrea Yates. And behind that, they're not a bad or nasty or aggressive or hostile person on one end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum, you get people with personality disorders. So there's things like psychopaths who are intrinsically, I wouldn't use the term evil, but they're, they're intrinsically antisocial. So they're impulsive, they lack empathy. They just can be quite difficult, let's put it that way. Uh, and everything in between. So to answer your question, Stevie, I think that I would, it's easier to like people who are psychotic and, and you know, completely disconnected to what they did. And the thing that, that surprised me in my line of work is that you never, it's, it's really hard to predict what somebody's going to be like. So sometimes I read what somebody's done and you come in and the person sitting in front of you is actually quite well and they're quite vulnerable and they can barely speak or they're really sort of paranoid and they're hearing voices and they don't seem aggressive. Like what they've done might be. Yeah. But they probably just did it in a in a, a lash of paranoia. You know, they might have stabbed their own mother or sister. Yeah. Not because they're bad, angry people that want to hurt them like longitudinally. It's because mm. in that moment they were so unwell they didn't know what they were doing. It's a bit like that. Um, is it Ed Kemper? Who is is he the he's one who killed his mum? Really, like he's really good at talking. He's really articulate. Isn't he? He's quite charming. A, yeah. a lot yeah. of serial killers, I think, have been shown to be on the higher end of the IQ. Haven't they? Like, yeah, I, like Ted, I don't know Ted, how I'm wording that, but Ted, no, Ted Bundy was was smart, wasn't he? Yeah, I think a lot of them seem to be on like the like brain wise seem to be quite smart people. So we got nothing to worry about. Yeah, so <laughs> nothing going on here. Don't worry, you're safe. Have you ever become attached to somebody that you're working with? Um, yeah, I think I probably have. I think I've. Uh, the, the honest truth is, I think especially when I was when I was young, when I first got into it. So I'd, when I started in forensics, like specifically forensics, let me think, it would have been two thousand and. 10 is that right so i'd have been in my 20s mm. yeah or maybe early 30s uh, i think that i cared about whether people liked me or not too much so i was trying to be a bit pally 
with some of the patients that are on the ward. Right. Uh, and I quickly learned that actually that's, you, you shouldn't do that. And there's a reason you shouldn't do that because you're not their friends. Right. And also because you have to set boundaries. So if somebody, if you're getting on with somebody really well, and so like on some of the, you're encouraged to spend time with the patients, you play pool with them, you have lunch with them sometimes on these, on these secure wards. If you become too friendly and too pally, you're the person that has to say no to them further down the line. So you're the person that has to stop their leave if they didn't come back in time, or you're the person that has to increase their meds if they're becoming more paranoid or hearing voices. Mm. Uh, you're the person that has to give them a telling off or, you know, basically set in boundaries. So you can't be too, it, it's much, much harder to come back from that if you're too pally. Right. It was like really personal to me and, and to that patient. Mm. And I, I think I learned that the hard way in that those people that I really got on with and I, I wouldn't say I was friends with, but I was pally with. Yeah. Um, and then I kind of realized that actually that's that's just going to shoot you in the foot. You have to be a little bit kind of stone-faced. You can be polite and nice, but you can't be too too friendly. That's just another reason why I couldn't <laughs> do what you do. Because I think I'm, I'm, I so want people to like me. And if someone's like... A bit cold to me. I won't. I won't. I wouldn't be able to get my head around that. I would like try and actively. Yeah, it's it's quite similar to what um, Vanessa Frake said to us about how she had to treat prisoners, and then same with Raphael Rowe. Actually, when mm. he's been going into prisons, he'll meet these people and find out what they've done. But he's always having to keep himself disconnected from everything. Yeah, That's such a hard thing to do. If you, I don't. I think if you can't do it, you just can't do it. Yeah. You know what? I genuinely do think at the risk of saying extremely patronising. I think age has got a lot to do with it as well. Because right. I think my outlook, you're 30, you guys are thirty. Yeah. My outlook at thirty was very different from it is now. Oh really? Yeah. Maybe it's age. Maybe it's just. The, the job that I do yeah. yeah we're doing something where we just need everyone to like us as well <laughs> we're so desperate for attention <laughs> so, so with that I'm, yeah, no, I'm desperate for attention yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know you murdered your mum but what do you think of me yeah. oh, are we alright <laughs> yeah. yeah and also like I think I'm quite easily like I trust people too easy mm. so it's like I'd read the case <laughs> notes so it'd be like murdered his own mum with a shovel and then I'd go in there and it'd be like Oh, I like your glasses. I'm like, mate, you're a legend. <laughs> Such a really nice guy. <laughs> I'll get to my reason for sanity. Let me. <laughs> did, was there, have, have, have I heard this wrong? Or did you say you have elements of so, like being a psychopath? Did you yeah, say? yeah, I do. I mean, uh, well, I've got a, a couple of very small elements in that. I think I lack fear and I'm not sort of uh, emotionally affected by things. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't say I lack empathy. Do I lack empathy? I don't like empathy for people that are, that are close to me and that I care about, but I say that I would say that I'm quite cynical in general. Right. I'm quite like that. All of those things, I think I'm a bit like that. You know, I'm not an emotional person. No, I'm really so bad with emotion. If I accidentally chop my hand off now, I'd be like, be gross. How are you reacting? <laughs> oh, that's nice. Um, I, I don't think I'd feel the fact that you're in pain. I, I wouldn't want that to happen to you, but I don't feel like, oh, we must be in a lot of pain right now. I'd just be like, oh, I'll probably get that sorted. <laughs> but i don't know that's what i mean like i, I really struggle like people crying around me i really struggle with it yeah yeah because i can't feel what other people are feeling i don't know how to like i almost feel like i'm pretending to have to yeah is he a psychopath no i think i think you and i are probably quite similar stevie so the reason that we're not I, mean, I, I don't know enough about your background but i assume the reason that you're not psychopath same as me and that despite that we don't sort of manipulate or con people we don't like yeah i don't I like to think i don't yeah we're not mm. like parasitic on other people as well no so if you're not those things you're not a psychopath what do you mean by parasitic so a, a true psychopath is parasitic in their lifestyle so they they use other people to get things so they will go out of their way to i don't know not pay rent or use their friends to to expand their their social circle oh fuck I am. yeah i am though. <laughs> <laughs> no you don't use it i'm using you <laughs> oh, oh yeah, but, but, but then also like 
No, nah, you, you get rounds all the time. You're, you're decent. Yeah, but I mean, like, what about in terms of like, oh, this YouTuber, do you want to come on the podcast? No, that's I our give job. give a shit about their life. Oh, do don't I? say that because they're not going to come on now. <laughs> yeah, but that's the job. That's, that's your job. That's different, isn't oh, it? Have you seen the film Saltburn? I, I watched it the other day. No, I haven't seen it yet. I've heard yeah. a lot about it. I've okay. heard a lot about the bar. I really, really liked it. Um, but I would say he's a perfect exam- example, the main character. I can't remember what he's called in the film. Uh, what's he called in the film? Oh, I can't remember. I know the, the actor, Barry. Yeah, Barry, Barry Keogh. Yeah. yeah. But whatever his character is, it's a perfect example of, first of all, a psychopath because he's so sort of ch- because he slips under the radar. He's a kid. Yeah. You know, you can't even know he's a psychopath which is exactly what a real psychopath is, number one. But number two is parasitic lifestyle. So he kind of he leeches off other people to yeah. worm his way in there. So that's what I mean by parasitic, using other people. You hear that like, psychopaths are often portrayed in, in a film a lot, aren't they? Like um, in The Shining, you've got Jack Nicholson's character, you've got Leonardo DiCaprio in Shutter Island, um, Whacking Phoenix we were speaking about in Joker. Um, for you, which, cause just because you brought up Saltburn there, which yeah. film do you, do you think is like, really nailed it for you when it comes yeah. to like mental illness portrayal so do you mean psychopath specifically or do you mean mental illness in general whatever way you want to tackle okay. that really i suppose the one thing i would say is that people misunderstand psychopaths all the time right in fact you know this is you asked me what my pet peeves one i forgot to mention is mm. as, a, as a mental health youtuber is seeing people getting it wrong on youtube and they call um people psychopaths in films incorrectly it's far more often than they get it correctly right so specifically a psychopath is not necessarily somebody who is violent it is somebody who is it's more about being charming and manipulative if violence helps your cause because you're a thug or a drug dealer then that's what psychopath will do but it doesn't have to be a psychopath is more about somebody who manages to as i said before slip under the radar pretend that they're normal on the outside but will stab their best friends in the back to get a promotion so they don't have any empathy for anybody including people that they're supposedly close to including their spouses including their kids so to answer your question a good a good depiction of that would be this guy from saltburn um because you don't know that there's anything wrong with him on the outside yeah no one else could see it mm. as viewers we could but yeah. yeah and i suppose i mean this is a bit of a cop-out because very similar film but just one that pops to my mind is talented mr ripley that's a perfect example of somebody that's using his surroundings and the people around him and lying and manipulating and pretending he's something that he's not. That's what a true psychopath is. Right. And I guess a misconception that I probably hold about psychopaths is that, um, to echo what you said, like, um, oh, uh, aggressive, wild, um, and eventually end up in prison. But are there like mi- millions of psychopaths that are just walking about day to day that will never commit? big crimes or will they all sort of eventually go on to commit crimes no uh, it's the first of the two absolutely there's loads of psychopaths in fact i'd probably say there's more psychopaths that either haven't committed crime or are under the radar of the police there's more of those than there are people psychopaths in prison right so about one percent of the population is psychopaths so i suppose that means technically there's what what's the population of the uk about 70 mil now isn't it yeah so um so whatever (laughs) 700k yeah but I suppose some of them are kids, aren't they? So they'd have to be adults. So maybe maybe sort of 300 odd, thousand odd cops. So when you say people wrongly call people psychopaths, is that where people, you know, I, I hear a lot of people either going, well, they're either a psychopath or a sociopath. Yeah. So is so what's the difference between those two things? Mm. Yeah, I'll explain that just before. I just want to say something quickly. Mm. Uh, you probably know this, but psychopaths are massively overrepresented in the, in the corporate world, right? And the reason they're so successful, the reason why they rise to CEO level, is because they will do anything for promotion. They will, you know, lie to or about their colleagues. They will stab anybody in the back. 
so they can actually thrive in that kind of world. <clears throat> you get psychopaths that that, um, that do jobs where a lack of a fear res- response is helpful. So first responders, surgeons are overrepresented um, with psychopathy. So would would Jeff uh, Jeff Bezos? Is a likelihood that he'll be a psychopath? Uh, I don't know enough about him and the mm. way he treats people. I the one that comes to mind is uh, Steve Jobs. Possibly could be a psychopath because he was like pretty horrible to other people. He would do whatever it took to to meet his <clears> and, <throat> and, and treat his workers like shit. So I, I'm not saying he's definitely a psychopath, especially because he's dead. Yeah, but um, he definitely has some of the traits. Yeah. I don't oh know wow. About Jeff Bezos. Yeah. In um, you hear similar stories. How how true they are, I, I don't know. But there's yeah. like a, a, there's the stories what? that like Amazon workers have to uh, they, they wasn't there like a, a peeing in the bottles peeing in the bottles because yeah. they're not allowed toilet breaks. Like, and um, was that his doing or was that? The middle I think it's filtered mm-hmm. through from him. Like, yeah. I think there was the famous story again. Not sure if it's true, but the famous story. <laughs> of a pregnant woman who was told she wasn't allowed to go because her waters had broke and she gave birth in the Amazon warehouse and stuff. So I don't know. So I suppose if he knew that and he allowed it to happen, then that's definitely somebody indicative of traits of psychopathy. Right. I I only know it from, um, is it Jesse Eisenberg's portrayal in The Social Network, but Zuckerberg, how you've been explaining it, comes across as a psychopath in that film. Mm Mm-hmm. Would you would you say he has those tendencies? Because he seems to just oh, be jumping on film. top. Yeah, obviously it's just, we're only seeing an acted version of <laughs> yeah. it, but the the everything he did to his business partner and everything is out there, isn't it? Mm. He won money off him and whatnot. So mm. if that is to be believed, surely he's showing those tendencies. I also don't want to get sued by Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> so just for the camera, these guys put me up. To it. <laughs> and like we said earlier, one of my favourite films is Joker. Um, yeah, the, the Joaquin Phoenix portrayal, um, and. I had to Google this, I'll be honest, but he has a, um, uh, well, it came, it's, it's a disease, apparently. Is it a bulbar palsy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's the that's what we see with him doing the sort of uncontrollable laughing. Yeah. Uh, how, how, how common is that? Uh, it's very rare. So I've only ever seen it once in my career, and it wasn't the reason that somebody was in our psychiatry unit. They had like tics and OCD, but they happened to have it as a comorbid disease. So just by coincidence, they had this. So it's very, very rare. So do you want me to give you my two-minute sort of summary on the psychoanalysis of... Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, please. So I've done a video on this on my YouTube channel, which is why I kind of know about it. Mm. It's that I would argue that it's not, even though despite what how it's portrayed, it's not mental illness that drives Arthur Fleck to become Joker. It's everything else surrounding that, right? So he's got this pseudobulba palsy, pseudobulba affect, mm-hmm. palsy it's called. So he laughs uncontrollably. So that leads him to being beaten up it leads him to being mocked there's so many things on the outside <clears throat> that are happening to him he just goes through a series of traumatic events and you know all from mm-hmm. being like beaten up and mugged by kids to losing his job on the background of having a severe head injury so i think that's really relevant because as you might know people with severe head injuries can become quite disinhibited they become quite aggressive mm-hmm. uh, if it's in a certain part of the brain plus he experienced abuse himself from his stepfather possibly from his mother then all these other events come in so he has an identity crisis thinking he's um uh, what's Bruce Wayne's dad's called? Bruce Wayne's dad? Something, oh, Thomas. Thomas Wayne, of Martha, it? but yeah, yeah um, Thomas. Thomas, he thinks it's Thomas <clears throat> Wayne's son and then he gets kind of disowned by him. So bec- I think it's it's layer upon layer of all of these traumas mm. that makes him finally snap. He feels like he's nobody. He feels like the world isn't taking him seriously and then he kills these people on the train and for the first time ever, he gets like respect from the community and he, he kind of stands up for himself and he realises that the only way that the world will pay attention to him and stop being ignored is by being the sort of maniacal beast. So in summary, it's not, I don't think, mental illness that causes him to become the Joker. I think it's a couple of neurological diseases. So the, the pseudobulbar palsy thing is, is a neurologist. It's to do with your nerves rather than your emotions. It's neurology. Oh, right. Psychiatry, head injury, and all of these events made him 
this kind of supervillain, not mental illness. That's what I think. Wow, what what an analysis! I can see why you do it for a job. You're pretty, <laughs> you're pretty good at it. He's done this before. <laughs> yeah, he's done this before. Um, how 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 accurate? You said you met what one person that was suffering with this? Is that correct? Yeah. Um, how accurate was Wacking's performance of? Of that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think his entire performance that film was exceptional. I, yeah, it was pretty accurate. This person that I remember was in a secure unit and would laugh fairly maniacally, probably not as often as Joaquin was doing it mm-hmm. once in a while. It's not too dissimilar to um, uh, to Tourette's. It's kind of like a tick that you can't control, but what, it's just laughter rather than a swear word. What What is the, um, and this might not be uh, something you know, but what, with Tourette's, what, what's, the, what's going on there? What's the science behind that? Yeah. I don't know too much, to be honest with right. you. I know there's like certain prefrontal cortex, it's called the certain um, aspects of the brain that yeah. kind of ride wired wrongly. Play. Another, another film that gets a lot of props for the acting from the audience um, is James McAvoy and Split. Mm. Seen that. Have you not seen it? Ah, oh, so uh, all over the internet, like people tend to think he's incredible in it. So I think yeah. he's schizophrenic in that film. He's got multiple personality yeah. disorder. No, he, he has split personality. Split personality, disorder. but he's got quite a few different. He has twenty three different um, personalities and twenty three <clears throat> different alter egos, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. So I, I would have been intrigued. It'd be cool for you to watch it because, as a viewer, he's very good at playing the different personalities. But I'm intrigued yeah. to know whether he's good at doing the mental illness side of it. Mm. Obviously we're just seeing all these personalities, but whether that's a true portrayal of it is hard for us to judge. So I can, I can, I, I can answer that to a degree. So I've seen, I've seen like the trailer, so I know the premise of the film mm. and I know that he does, as you say, sort of jump between these characters. The one thing that I would say is that uh, dissociative identity disorder is the technical term for multiple personality disorder is, is extremely rare. And I've seen, I've never seen personally a credible case of it myself, but I've seen several people who've tried to fake it. So probably about five or 10, well, probably close to 10 people over my career that have tried to fake it. So I'm not saying it doesn't exist because I think that would be a bit um, arrogant of me, but I'm saying that I'm very sceptical about most of its presentation. Right. And it tends to happen to people who have had horrific, repeated trauma and abuse. So unless you've got that in your background, it's almost impossible to have that disorder, which is one of the reasons that I'm sceptical about the patients that I've seen because they've had some form of abuse, but not to that degree. So so that, how, how do you... How do you say to someone you're lying? Like about like if are they going as simple as just going hello and then suddenly they're going, this is John now. Like are that is that what they're trying to do? Because I've seen it in a film. Yeah. Going that will get me off. There's there's this. Um, I'm not going to name it because it's not fair. But there's this podcast I watched a couple of years ago, quite a big podcast, and they had a guest on who was this um, this girl, and she said that she had split personality disorder and that she would f- like f- on days on end would check would change to to be this y- young boy and she it was quite bizarre because obviously when you're not used to that um i found it quite bizarre but she then said um she spoke about the trauma that she'd suffered when she was younger with pedophiles and stuff and it was and it was horrible yeah. um but watching it i thought like I, to put it bluntly, and who am I to say this, but I didn't believe the split personality thing. I was mm. like, it seems like a coping mechanism for something that's happened. And, and then... So did, can I ask, did she flip between the personalities during the podcast? No, she it? didn't. Not not during the podcast. Okay. Um, I don't think. Um, I think I would have remembered it. But then um, her partner later came out and basically said that he hadn't really seen that 
if that makes sense. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, there was a bit of me that thought, like, I, I've never seen, um, like, a documentary or something about it. I think, I think strangely, it's one of the things I've seen... I've never seen a documentary about it, but I've seen it in films all the time. There's a film called Identity. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it, but I think that's mm. quite good. I can't describe it because it, it's a big plot twist, right. so it would ruin it, but I thought that was quite good. But as an entertainment thing... But I've obviously never actually seen, like, I'm surprised I've never seen a documentary on mm. someone. You sit in films all the time where they're talking like one person and suddenly talking like a different person. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, I'm surprised I've never seen an actual documentary it's about it. It's a really intriguing thing, isn't mm. it? This might interest you. So there is a, I'm trying to remember the name now, Kenneth, I'm sure his name is Kenneth Bianchi. He was a, uh, a serial killer in California in, I believe, the 70s, if you're able to look that up. Yeah, yeah. got it here, Kenneth Bianchi. Yeah, in 1950, uh, born 1951. Serial killer, kidnapper and rapist. Yeah, um, span of crimes, 1977 What's to 1979. Like a nickname, something Hills Murderer or something. Other names, the Hillside Strangler, Hillside Strangler right, and so. Kennifer. Mm. Okay, so this is a perfect example of somebody faking it. Um, so <clears throat> I'm trying to remember all the details now. So he... He was a serial killer and it turned out that it wasn't just him. It's him and his cousin, I believe, that were going around killing all these women uh, in California in the 70s. And he tried to fake multiple personality disorder. And he basically got caught out by a clever psychologist who kind of just basically tricked him by saying certain things like, there's no such thing as having two personalities. It has to be a minimum of three for the diagnosis to work, which is bullshit. And then suddenly this magically, this third person. Oh, no. Oh. Like and then the psychologist said, you, you, you should, if, if you've got this disorder, you should be able to remember these details, not these details. And kept, oh, so he just kept saying it and then he's suddenly making up all these extra exactly. things. So he wrote in his report, this guy's like this. Oh, wow. Wow. But, but, but there's never been a confirmed case of somebody definitely having split personality. Not that I, I mean... I, 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 I should answer that by saying I think there has been, but I'm not fully convinced how. I I would need to see it myself to be fully convinced. I'm like an agnostic. Right. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I think I only know it from films. Like, Psycho's the same, isn't it? Psycho because he he dresses up yes. as his mum yeah, yeah. and then kills people when he's dressed as his mum. Yeah. So that's uh, is that's is that why he's called? I don't know the original Psycho. Right. I know um, I've seen the Vince Vaughn one, oh, which okay. is a weird version <laughs> of it, but um. And then is that why he was called Kennifer? Because his other personality was maybe called Jennifer. Oh, I, I guess that was why his nickname was that. Right. Um, so I'll just quickly say this: in the cases that I've seen, I've seen hundreds, possibly even thousands of cases where somebody's psychotic, so they have like a paranoid belief that's incorrect, and that's why they've attacked somebody. I've seen that loads of times, but I've never credibly seen somebody that's completely switched from one personality and doesn't have any of the thoughts, emotions, or memories of another personality. I've never seen that. Right. Have you seen Shutter Island? Yeah. What, what's, what's he got in that? Um, I suppose he would have he would have a psychotic disorder. So he'd be psychotic. So out, out of keeping with reality. Yeah. I'm trying to think if he had a split personality. I don't think he did. It. Or, no. Or is he completely fine? Because it, it's, the, it's the, is he fine? Or is, yeah. he, is he, yeah. Um, and isn't the, the lobotomy thing? Um, was that a thing that genuinely used to happen to yep. try and cure mental illness? Yeah, yeah. Can you explain to me what a lobotomy is? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's completely barbaric. So it's removing either the the prefrontal cortex, cortex or the um, the connections to it. You can either literally cut the head open and make incisions, or they used to put an ice pick in the corner of the eye and uh, <sighs> smash it with a hammer. So basically, it's a very very blunt tool. Um, I said this in my lad bible thing. It's kind of like trying to fix a water leak in a house by by blowing up the whole house you get rid of the water leak but you pretty much 
destroy the house. So in that way, you can get rid of a mental illness, but you pretty much kill the personality of the patient. Completely wow. barbaric, completely <laughs> unacceptable. But back in those days, I think this was what, what 40s or something, 50s? Mm. There was no, there weren't clinical trials. Like if one psychiatrist said it worked, then people give it a go because they did um, electroshock therapy as well. That used to be a thing, didn't it? Yeah, it's still is a thing. So I've given I've given that myself. Oh, oh really? Yeah, yeah. So I've only seen the intense version in like American Horror Story and <laughs> yeah. stuff. So so that gets a really bad press, but it's actually very effective in very severe uh, mental illness. So it is effective in the depression that's so severe the individual's not eating, so their life is at risk, or if there's an acute suicide risk, or if the patient's so sort of manic and frenzied that they're really, really agitated and they're at you know, a risk of hurting themselves. It basically, it's not as bad as, a, well, it's as blunt and, and as unscientific as a lobotomy in that it doesn't work on one specific area. It just sh- sends a shock through the brain and it makes the individual have a seizure, uh, but it can reset some of the chemicals in your brain to get rid of that uh, disorder temporarily. So it's not a quick fix solution. Right. Uh, but if somebody's literally at risk of dying and nothing else is working, that it can save lives. I've seen it save lives. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I used to do that when I was a junior doctor. I used to uh, like put the, wow the electrodes and stuff. So if if you looked at a somebody with mental illness, let's say um, a schizophrenic person and somebody with a sane brain, uh, it, and and again, listeners, if if I if I don't word this like in the most sort of PC way, then I apologise. I don't really know what the correct sort of terminology behind it. Are is, you asking looking at the actual brain or if, a scan of if, the brain? If you're looking at the, at the like the scan of the brain of a mentally unwell person and a well person, are there are there are there dif- differences? Can you tell? Not really. No, there might be very small changes, but they're they're very they're quite non-specific. So it's not particularly that helpful. Right. Uh, the truth is, is that psychiatrists are not don't fully understand how mental illnesses are caused. We we've have some clues, I'll, I'll be specific. So antipsychotics, drugs that stop the symptoms of schizophrenia or lessen symptoms of schizophrenia block dopamine receptors. So logically, it follows that there's dopamine hyperactivities in more dopamine being processed in the brains of people with schizophrenia. So we kind of, we, we have insights, indirect insights like that, but, mm. but it's impossible to actually look at, the, at um, like microscopically at the chemical changes. Right, okay. But but they don't know. It, could could we just become schizophrenic at any point? Um, it's possible, but it's very very unlikely. So it's usually first of all, it's usually connected with the family history. Okay. Usually mental illnesses that run in the family. So it's not impossible for somebody to not have relatives and to get it, but it's very unlikely. Number one, number two, it usually comes out in your late teens or your early twenties. So it'd be unusual for somebody at the age of thirty to develop that. See, even that's fascinating to me. Like why? Why would it? Why would it come out? Just at suddenly that time? come on. Yeah. Well, a lot of the time, things like that can be through trauma, can't? Like, as in, like actual physical trauma. I mean, mm-hmm. rather than previous emotional trauma. It can be both. So I think all there's, it's kind of like lots of different risk factors. If you've got enough risk factors, if you have the family history, if you've got trauma, uh, if you have like been the victim of abuse, all of these things slightly increase your chance. And so if you have enough risk factors, then it will come out in some people, but not other people. Drug use is a huge one, you know, um, so like really some drugs more than others, amphetamines, skunk cannabis, really dangerous when it comes to schizophrenia, alcohol, not so much, heroin, not so much. So it's not all drugs, it's specific. What can, can cause it? Yeah, yeah. So if you've got a predisposition to it, yeah. it would cause it out of nowhere. But if you've got a familial or genetic predisposition, it can trigger it. Yeah. Are there any of those kind of drugs that help mental illness or not? 
Um, what, in terms of illicit drugs? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, like ketamine infusions, I'm sure you've heard about them. Right. Uh, again, they don't work in the long term. They only improve symptoms like depression for a very short period of, period of time, like a few days. Yeah. Uh, it's not something that you can use to cure somebody of an illness, but it can help you get over the edge if somebody, for example, is suicidal. Is that oh, wow. is that what makes it addictive? The fact that it makes you like get over depression essentially like because people are going wow that made me happy mm. yeah so they'll keep yeah. going back to so it it's more of a psychological addiction than a physical one yeah yeah shaham i read a book once <laughs> well done <laughs> i don't believe you <laughs> he does know he's in there he knows was it where's wally it's a very hungry caterpillar <laughs> let me tell you um it was called the psychopath test okay have you heard of From it Ronson, yeah That's... i read it a long time ago yeah and in it and, and again i can't can't quite remember it because when I read, I don't take it in. Um, there was a guy who went in, who com- did he convince people that he was mentally unwell to get an easier sentence? Uh, but now he can't get out of the mental in- institution that he's in. Yeah. Have you have you remember this case? Or you- Not really, no. Right, no. but how how easy is it for people to? It was kind of like a did he didn't he type thing. So a bit like Shutter Island again. How easy is it for people to convince others or people in your profession that they're mentally unwell? Yeah, Uh, good question. So I would say it's very hard uh, and I'll tell you why. So I preface that by saying probably once every two or three months, I assess somebody who I think is either overtly faking mental illness or more often exaggerating symptoms because they want to get psychiatric defense. It's really easy to tell firstly because... I look at all the evidence before I see them, right? So if they're telling me that they were, I'll give you an example, say if there's like a, a stabbing in a pub after an argument, right? <clears throat> if they're telling me that they were hearing voices telling them to stab somebody, but I've got all these witness statements for everyone else that was in the pub and I've seen CCTV footage and the assailant was acting completely normally, was normal during the police interview, doesn't have a history of mental illness. It's possible, but it's highly unlikely that they were actually hearing voices. Um, so my, you know, my bullshit radar's on, on quite high alert. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. <clears throat> the next thing is I try, I find out how they are now. So if they're on remand, I'll speak to the prison guards. If they were already sectioned in hospital, sometimes that happens. If they, if they seem to be really unwell, then I'll ask the nurses around them. Um, and you're just looking for consistency. And I think that people in general are really bad at faking mental illness because they go with these Hollywood depictions, like you know, split or like these things. Mm-hmm. They try and force it. So. Another way of saying that is if you were actually really psychotic and you were paranoid and you've never met me before, you would not open up and tell me that you're paranoid because you, as far as you're concerned, I'm probably part of the conspiracy. So people who are really mentally unwell, it's, it's the opposite. You actually have to tease out their mental state and, and they're really quite reluctant and guarded and evasive. Uh, whereas when people try and tell you almost immediately within the first few minutes that I'm hearing voices or that, you know, I'm, I'm crazy, then I don't believe them. That makes so much sense, and I would have never even thought of it that way. Is it, is it the same the other way around? So, are mentally unwell people able to convince you they're not? Uh, I would argue not. I suppose I wouldn't actually know if that's ever happened or not. Right, yeah. <laughs> but I would argue not because. Uh, so, so I suppose it depends on the context, right? If you're talking about a um, a one-off assessment where I'm seeing somebody as an expert witness and my job is just to write the report so that it can be used in their court case, then I suppose they could potentially keep it together for an hour. It's, it's, it's definitely doable. Yeah. Um, you might argue why they'd want to do that because it'd probably be working against them. And what reason would, I guess it's if they're trying to get out of a... Get, they're, they've done their time in the mental u- unit now and they want to get out. To be a, be a That is slightly different simply because that's not a one-off Um assessment they're under surveillance oh okay being watched 24 hours a day by nursing staff so they'd have to really put some effort into <laughs> well 
I'd argue put a different sort of spin on it. So, so uh, part of being a forensic psychiatrist in a secure unit is deciding when individuals are allowed to leave or are safe to leave into society. And you need to do that because there's a constant pressure on, on new people that have to come in, uh, even though you're in for a lot, they're in for a long time, as I said before, two, three, four years, sometimes longer. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's, there's other people in prison that need to come into those places. So there's always a, a pressure to discharge people when you can, right? Right. And when you discharge somebody, obviously you're getting one of the main things you do first is get rid of their mental illness through medication. That's pretty standard <clears throat> therapy to really drill down the reasons they offended. So is it drug and alcohol issues? Is it anger management? Is it you know, misogynistic views? What can we fix through therapy or what can we change through therapy? Those are the two basic things. After that, <clears throat> it's all about observing their behavior on the ward. So do they push boundaries? Do they get into arguments or into fights? Even though they're not prisons, they're there, there is there's a prison vibe in some of these units because a lot of people have come from prison so mm-hmm. there's people getting into the spaces there's potential arguments and, and nurses setting boundaries like per, people's bedtimes etc etc so there's a lot of opportunity to lose your temper so <clears throat> if you manage to maintain your boundaries and not lose your temper not get into fights not give positive urine drug screen tests and you go on leave so you start off with a small amount of leave just half an hour a day escorted with a nurse and then it comes to unescorted and then if they're functioning in the community and they're, they're doing constructive things like going to internet cafes education you know going to college all of these things from the hospital on leave mm-hmm. they do that for long enough then in my mind they're ready to be discharged and you have to take that risk yeah and i know that there is a proportion of patients that will go out and offend again but you can't just keep everybody locked indefinitely because otherwise what's the point of trying to cure them in the first place right yeah that must be so tough then yeah i mean yeah. it's a big responsibility and, and psychiatrists get it wrong every four or five years there's a story in the newspaper of somebody that's, that's been through that and then has gone on to kill it happens yeah it's inevitable because the people that we deal with yeah you know they're already at high risk mm. of, of reoffending. Uh, but to answer your question stevie in my view if you can do all of that for six months then it doesn't matter whether you're faking it or not I it's like you've done it yeah. yeah can all mental illness be treated uh, no, I think, no. So I've, there's two ways to answer that. So one would be that I've seen patients, so I worked at Broadmoor for a while, who are so unwell that even though they've had pretty much every combination of antipsychotic medication that you possibly can give, their delusions remain and they just can't get better and I can't see them ever leaving hospital. The best case scenario for them is, is stepping down to like a less secure unit for the rest of their lives. That's one thing. <clears throat> Outside of people within these units, some diseases like um schizophrenia tend to relapse and remit so people eventually will uh, relapse at some point right. but so so not not all of those like that some, some mental illnesses can be relatively short-lived but not all you, you you said you obviously you interview mentally ill people all the time um and you go into these psychiatric units again my only reference point from that is watching these films um, and they're quite extreme sometimes of what's going on in there. How accurate are those films to mental hospitals? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll be blunt about it. We imagine loads of people running around, crazy people, animated people. Heads on walls yeah, and stuff. That's yeah. what you get in, like, as I said, American Horror Story did a whole series of, of in inside, like, a uh, insane, I think it was called Asylum. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and they portray it as, obviously that was portrayed for, like, 60-odd years ago or whatever, but mm. they portray it as... Like everyone's just completely or like one flew over, uh, one flew over the cuckoo's yeah, nest. Yeah. I think, yeah. yeah. Uh, so my answer to that would be it's quite variable. So <clears throat> obviously, for them to be in a psychiatric hospital in the first place, they have to be quite unwell, right? And there's always a pressure <clears throat> to discharge people when they're better. Uh, even more so in general adult wards, so not wards for offenders, but in your average normal psychiatry unit where people go who haven't committed any violence who are not necessarily dangerous there's a big pressure to discharge them because you're intruding on their lives by keeping them in 
and because there's just such a need for spaces. So the point I'm trying to make is that you won't have anybody on the ward unless they've got some sort of fairly significant illness. So by definition, the people there are quite ill. In terms of their presentation, it's really very, very variable. So I think in the in the movies that you're talking about, and I've seen them myself, they always seem to pick manic patients who are just like uncontrollable and frenzied. And there's definitely some of them. So on an average ward, I would say probably, from my experience, roughly about two or three people will be like that out of, say, maybe 15 to 20 people. Would they be allowed to spend time with the other patients or is that too much of a risk? It depends. So if it, so, there's different levels of wards as well, there's different levels of security. If somebody's like actually overtly violent, then no, they'd be in a secure unit with a lot more nursing observation. If they're really agitated, they go into a seclusion room, hmm. which is kind of like, I suppose, the, the uh, equivalent of a padded cell. It's not a padded cell, but that's what people think it is. Uh, but if they're relatively well, then they'll be encouraged to kind of mix with other people. But what I was going to say is that one thing that you very rarely see in these um, programs is the depiction of people who are severely depressed because it's not that exciting TV and they might be really withdrawn, might be really isolated. Mm. Sometimes they don't come out of their bedrooms or if they do, they kind of sit in the corner or people with like chronic schizophrenia. They have these negative symptoms, like a lack of energy, lack of like interactions. They're really socially withdrawn and isolative, so they don't do very much. You know, in some of the wards I've worked in, there's there's literally people, and you know, you've got to feel sorry for them because they're, you know, tortured with these symptoms and they're just literally sitting, sit on the chair and, and do nothing all day. Like you could leave them and they wouldn't move until like you came and took them to bed or took them to a meal. Wow. Um, so it's not too dissimilar to like intense dementia. It's not the same thing because they don't yeah. have memory problems, but that's their kind of volition, their, their kind of their inability to do anything. So I'm just saying that because you, you don't really see that yeah. in the films. You just see the agitated people. We have the perfect guest to speak to about a question we've asked on this pod a few times. Mm. How do people with with a mental illness that may cause them, well, I assume, or psychopath that causes them to do something horrific, meet someone else willing to do that with them? Yeah, like Fred and Rose West. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like how 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 like if any of my friends came up to me and went, oh, "I really want to do this," I'm going, "What the fuck?" It like, like they I'm all seem away. to meet someone. Yeah. But how how do they meet someone else like minded? Because it's a it's a rarity obviously for yeah. someone to be willing to do something so horrific but you see it so often that these these they can work in Probably pairs or in, yeah. yeah so how, how does that happen is it just pure chance or is it one kind of grooming the other to become that yeah the honest answer is i'm not sure my best guess would be that you don't go and say i, I think we should become serial because we should go out and kill these people you probably take little steps and you make little suggestions like wouldn't it be funny if we beat this person up play it off as a joke yeah and then, yeah. And then but if you keep pushing boundaries i think sometimes in some like so fred and rose west i think it, it's fair to say that fred was like the driving force and rose just did what he told what he told her to do mm-hmm. but i think in other situations you get a dynamic of so you know brianna gay so she was the transgender girl who got stabbed um I think it was a while ago but the, the court case was very recently it's in, in the papers like, i may say. have heard about it i'm not too sure so there's a, a boy and a girl. I don't think they were they were named initially. Two teenagers, and it feels like they were both sending each other messages back and forth. And they'd planned this thing in advance. They met her on the internet, um, <clears throat> but it felt like they were both sort of almost playing chicken of who could do the most, who could suggest the most aggressive, oh wow, horrible thing to do to impress the other person. Right. So I think sometimes it's that. It's who will back away first. Makes sense. Do Do you ever get scared going into these psychiatric units and having to be around these people? No, I've been punched in the face twice in my career. Have you? That's going to be <laughs> yeah. my next question. Have you ever <laughs> been, a, been attacked? Patients. Two yeah. different people. Two different people, but but very eerily similar situation. Oh, really? It's very weird. So the very first time I went onto a, med- a forensic unit, not that I'd want to sort of stigmatise mentally ill people as being violent, but literally the very first time I went to a forensic unit, I got punched in the face on the first day. Did that put you off? 
No. <laughs> I'm coming back. Come on. Wouldn't be here, right? Um, but it, so both both times were by men who I didn't know, who had, I'd never met before, who were transfixed by me for some reason compared to anybody else. Uh, one was in Australia because I worked out there for a bit, and one was in uh, in North London where I did where I started my training. And I'd literally walked on the ward. Both of them had psychotic beliefs. One of them I never got to speak to so I don't know what it was about but the other one so he was kind of I was I was basically trying to show off so I got there it was my very first day and I wanted to impress my consultant I was a junior doctor at the time so I went in early and I started interviewing my patients so that at the ward round I can show off and say you know I've been to you blah 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 um but but stupidly I didn't take any safety precautions I didn't carry an alarm with me I didn't um ask the nurses if it was safe and who was agitated and I've learned obviously you have to do that now and there was this one man the, the guy who punched me he just seemed like really um sort of preoccupied with me so even though i was interviewing somebody else he kept like looking at the window and he wasn't being threatening he was just like looking at me and he'd open the door and he would ask really bizarre questions like he thought i was some sort of friend of his from school and he was like talking about this cricket match we played none of it made sense and i just didn't i don't know what he's talking about so i kind of dismissed him and, and ignored him and then i came out of the interview room <clears throat> and he basically ran up behind me and, and slapped and like punched me as hard as he could on the side of the head and i didn't even see it coming i was literally from the side wow so i kind of woke up on the floor i think i lost consciousness maybe for a couple of seconds and in australia it was, it was similar somebody i hadn't actually spoke I'd, i hadn't had any interaction with him but he ran up to me and also punched me in the side of the head i presume because he had some delusional belief about did it. you ever speak to the people afterwards or was it just um, that's so th- that for the because I was actually working one in Australia, I was it was literally a night shift, so I was just walking through to prescribe medication for somebody, so I had no involvement with that ward or that patient. I told the nurses, and to be honest, they didn't seem that bothered at all. Very much like he's done it before. Yeah, we're on break. But the the other time in uh, in North London, it was the ward that I worked in. That was my first day, so I was around him for like the next six months, uh, and he was unwell. You know, like, I didn't take it personally. He was completely delusional, not just about me, but about everything all the time. Mm. I think he got taken to his room. He was given medication, um, but he wasn't aggressive towards me after that. And he, he tried to apologize to me in a kind of way. It didn't really make sense because he couldn't really speak properly. Yeah. But I knew he felt bad. I didn't, I didn't take it personally. These psychotic delusions are, are, are fascinating, aren't they? People believing something that's just not the case. Mm. Are, are there any common themes that, that people believe? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'd say that the ones that I see the most because their delusions lead to violence tend to be paranoia. So it's either that people are watching me, following me, want to kill me, either like, you know, people in general, like everybody. And think about that. If you're, if you genuinely believe that, it must be absolutely terrifying. Yeah. So you can kind of understand why somebody would react violently if you genuinely thought the whole world. It'd be like living in a zombie yeah. apocalypse or something. Yeah. yeah. Everyone's there to get you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what it's really like. Mm. Um, so people poisoning their food, um, cameras being hidden, being followed by like spies or FBI, those things are really common. The other thing, quite interestingly to me, is like religious delusions. So I've seen loads of people who are transfixed with religious uh, delusions who are not actually religious themselves. So they're not, it's almost like hell and damnation and brimstone and fire seeps into their consciousness because it very much aligns with being paranoid, isn't it? So, wow. And, and you might find this interesting. <clears throat> when the COVID occurred, I met two was it three, two or three patients who had like incorporated COVID into their delusions. So one, one man I saw actually believed that he was COVID. He believed that he was like the bacteria and that the whole world was, you know, trying to get rid of him through these vaccines. So he became really paranoid. Another one believed that, you know, that he, 
that everybody around him had COVID and he can give people COVID by looking at them. So he was like literally trying not to look at anybody because he because that's what he genuinely believed. So that's nice that he didn't want to give it to people. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah that's sweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just making the point that, that um psychotic people sometimes they absorb what's going on in the, in the world around them. So they see these new stories and it and it, it kind of immerses mm. itself into their psyche. It's like is there such a thing as like people believe in their God and believe in their Messiah? Is that is that common? That's Brandy complex. Is, people always yeah. say Messiah complex is like a thing, don't they? Yeah, but I think Messiah complex in, in how we sort of use But it, can there like, be like an oh, actual... They think they're so great is what we're saying. But you'd, yeah. you'd think there is like a deeper version of that. Yeah, like a... so <clears throat> uh, as you say, Messiah complex is more of a sort of narcissistic personality thing, whereas a delusion of grandeur can be that you've got special powers or that you're in some way... Um, sort of special religious. I've, I've seen at least three or four people that believe that they're some sort of incarnation of Jesus. Yeah. How do you convince somebody who's hearing voices that they're not hearing voices? Because to them they are, aren't they? So that's like you now telling me and utterly trying to convince me that we're not sat at a bright yellow table. How do you do that? Yeah, you don't. So you can't. You can't argue against a psychotic belief or delusion or an experience. You can medicate against it and you can get people to to work around or live with them. But I don't think you can convince somebody who's experiencing something that that, that it's not it's not real for them. That's quite scary, isn't it, as well? Like, especially like you, you see it where it just seems to come on randomly. There's a lot of things that we were talking on the way up here, weren't we? That we're worried that like brain is such a delicate thing. Like you could just wake up one day and now you suddenly believe something else. Obviously, you've got the trauma and stuff that can <coughs> cause it. But even even a knock to the head could suddenly make you look at life completely differently. Mm. That's quite scary. Do, do mentally unwell people know they're mentally unwell? So the the kind of the blunt answer to that is that we split mental illnesses into neuroses and psychoses So neuroses you do have insight so you know you're unwell you know if you're depressed you know if you're anxious you know if you've got ocd mm. you know if you've got post-traumatic stress disorder mm. and the psychoses like schizophrenia sometimes bipolar depending on what form of it you have is where you have you're out of touch with reality but you don't know that you are so you lack insight so the paranoia that you feel feels really real the voices that you hear sound real like you're hearing my voice they're external so <clears throat> as an aside people always like in you know rap videos and films and it's the voices in my head it's never in your head it's out your head you hear it externally like you're hearing my voice now oh really yeah so that's another way you can tell if somebody's like fabricating oh because they'll they'll saying. naturally say it's like a thought to mm, them yeah. but it's not well, they say they hear it like in yeah their, like literally <clears> in their ear, uh, which is but it's like someone's talking to them how often are these delusions harmful compared to being harmless i think the vast majority of the times they're harmless um by far but, you know, I don't know the exact percentage, but probably over 90% of the time. But the ones that are dangerous are the ones that, you know, God's commit violence and the ones that I see. So I think I've got a skewed perspective. So I just want to make the point to your viewers that I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't want to push the agenda or add to the stigma that mentally ill people are dangerous because they're not. It's just the ones that are, are the ones that I assess. Right. That's that's fair enough. Well, what's the, who's the most dangerous person you've, would you say you've ever had to assess or work with? Um... I suppose it depends. It's, it's, I'm hesitant, hesitant to answer that only because it depends how you define like violence or danger. Mm. So <clears throat> I mentioned before that I've seen a few women who've killed their own children. So one case that I, that I talk about in my book is this lady called Yasmin. That's not her real name. I, I give her a pseudonym to, to hide her identity. And it was the most sh- one of the most shocking cases that I've ever been involved in. And it's the first time I gave evidence at the Old Bailey for a murder trial. The first time? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
throwing in at the deep end. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. I think it's because there's so many aspects to the case that I could learn from that my consultant. So I was a middle grade doctor at the time. Okay. And my consultant just thought, you know, he's going to learn a lot from this, and he's probably, he might not see a case like this for years again. So mm-hmm. give the opportunity. Right. I'm grateful for. Uh, so she's called Yasmin. She was 18 years old, and unlike the vast majority of my patients, she didn't have a history of antisocial behaviour. She didn't have any mental health problems, and she became psychotic very quickly over the space of a couple of weeks. And there were some odd warning signs, like well, not warning signs. That's the wrong phrase. There was some odd behaviour. We, we call it prodrome. So it's like a, it's like um a phase before actual psychosis. So she was like listening to to these weird chanting musics instead of pop music. She was like wearing these really weird hippie kind of clothes. She's everything about her just changed a little bit, but nothing was violent or aggressive. Is that a common thing you see with <clears throat> people that are developing? This? Yeah. Is yeah, it? A prodrome, yeah. So when people become psychotic, usually there's a two or three week period where they just act strange. They had they don't they're not fully psychotic, but they have weird experiences and beliefs. So they see they don't like hear voices, but they like feel distractible they hear like humming sounds it's like a, a fairly quick build-up to oh wow state, yeah uh, and <clears throat> she was babysitting her two-year-old nephew and she basically smothered him and killed him because she had these psychotic beliefs that i truly believe that she was invested in she believed at the time that he was he had demons inside of him so very similar to that case of andrea yates and she believed that she could reincarnate him so she had paranoid delusions about demons and grandiose delusions about her ability to bring him back to life and a bit like Andrea, she didn't try and hide it. She didn't, she didn't believe that he was dead. So her mum came home. They all lived together. Her mum, the, the grandmother of of the baby, uh, of the toddler, and obviously called the police. And then she got arrested. And she was in Holloway Prison back then. So that's where I assessed her. Um, and she was very guarded and very evasive. So she wouldn't like she she wouldn't she refused to accept that the child had died. And upon my evidence, so that CPS were trying to get her on a murder charge, she would have been in prison for the rest of her life, which I think was absolutely the wrong. Uh, outcome so I upon my evidence she got a hospital order to go to a medium secure unit and she was there for many years for rehabilitation it took about 18 months for us to for us to medicate her psychotic belief so for that entire time she didn't believe that she killed her nephew it was only after the psychosis eventually cleared that she finally understood what she did and as you'd expect there's like this tidal wave of like you know guilt and shame um and she had to get through that and then her brother who's the father of the child that died was also part of the rehabilitation. So they'd have this like family therapy session once a week and I'd sit in on that and it's obviously really, really emotional trying to see them reconnect. That's an element that we don't really think of as the public. Like you think, oh, she killed her baby. Like she's just evil or whatever. Yeah. But the moment when sort of that mist clears, so yeah. to speak, and then she realized, she realizes what she's done. That's, that's got to be pretty intense as well. Yeah, yeah. It's quite, it's quite sad. Do you, do you think every serial killer in history has had a mental illness or do you think some of them just bloody love killing <laughs> <laughs> what a way to say it. <laughs> bloody love a murderer <laughs> i can't stop murdering it's my favorite thing um, <laughs> uh, it depends how you define mental illness right so if you're looking at it from the perspective of a psychiatrist like myself then i would say that it has to be a definable mental illness where there are symptoms and there are treatments like schizophrenia absolutely most serial killers don't have that definitely not if you look at it from the perspective as somebody doing something that's ununderstandable and really extreme that nobody else would do or the average person could understand, if you count that as a mental illness, which I wouldn't, then yeah, all serial killers have that. Probably the most important definition is the legal definition. So it's not mine or the layperson's definition. It's it's the law, which is the defense of like diminished responsibility, which is changes murder to manslaughter or not guilty by reason of sanity, which is for any offense. And it changes, it just completely eradicates responsibility. 
And for that to happen, you either don't know what you're doing or you don't know what you're doing is wrong. So if you're a serial killer, well, almost by definition, serial killers kind of have to cover their tracks, right? Yeah. Carry on serial killing. So yeah. the very fact that you've done that proves that you knew what you were doing was wrong. Right. So it's almost impossible for a serial killer to have that psychiatric defense. There we go. So would you just class them as a psycho? Some of them are psychopaths, not necessarily all of them, because like, so Ted Budney is a perfect example of a serial killer who's a psychopath because he was charming and he's manipulative. He manipulated his victims to come, the usually young women to, to go with him or go on dates, etc. Whereas some psycho, some uh, serial killers didn't do any of the manipulation. They just had this frenzy for killing. So they're not psychopaths. Like they lack empathy but they're not manipulative. So what would they be classed as? Like one that's not really interacting, they're just going, I want to do a murder today. <laughs> I don't think there is any necessarily any uh, psychiatric diagnoses for them. Some of them will have antisocial personality disorder. So that's like the younger brother of psychopathy. So it is the lack of empathy, the impulsivity, um, but without, and potentially the violence, but without the charming and manipulation. So is, are they the kind of people that you maybe just class as evil? Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't use the term evil, but that's that's basically what it means. Yeah. Can you get? You said that's like the younger brother. Can you can you get like a older brother? Yeah. Can can, can you get Should um, be a family tree? Can you, can you get like a small? I don't know the right way to phrase it, but like um, a lesser mental illness where it's like, oh, I'm not gonna kill someone, but I'm gonna act like this. Can that? Will it always eventually develop worse and worse, or can it stay at a certain lower level than? I know yeah, I've butchered yeah. that, but um, definitely you can stay at a low level. So another way of saying that is <clears throat> that the vast majority of people with all of these disorders we're talking about, anti-social personality sort of psychopathy, the vast majority of them don't kill. Right. With antisocial personality disorder, they're probably violent. And with psychopaths, if it suits them to be violent, they'll be violent. But the vast majority, like I only see the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more people that suffer from these things that don't either don't commit any um, of violence or certainly not severe violence. Talking of tip of the iceberg. Eating eyeballs is a note <laughs> that you kindly you kindly gave us prior to the interview. Like, oh, that's all you've written in practice. <laughs> yeah. Eating eyeballs. Is that, can, you, can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, yeah, he didn't eat them. He pulled them out, though. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know where I got eating from. His own? Or someone? Uh, so one of the most extreme cases that I saw, and I should I should say that I saw this guy years afterwards. It wasn't, um, like, it was about two years before he actually did what he did and, and when I assessed him. Mm. So he was trying to sue the prison that he was in for not keeping him safe because he became psychotic. So I'll give you a bit of the background. Mm. He was in his 50s, I believe, and he <clears throat> was not a career criminal by any means. He was actually quite depressed. He set a fire in his house um, and he got arrested for that, for like arson with um, with recklessness, I think, because nobody nobody else died, but they could have died because it was in like a block of flats. Mm -hmm. He was serving a prison sentence for that. Other prisoners immediately took a disliking to him. I think he was just a little bit old and, and posh and just didn't carry himself like the other prisoners did. They just disliked him, started bullying him. They started, they spread this rumour, it's untrue, two, two rumours actually. One, that he was a paedophile, which wasn't true. And secondly, that he'd killed his uh, girlfriend in the blaze, which also wasn't true. Uh, and because this rumor kind of spread through the prison, he started getting bullied and targeted. Because I'm sure you know, you know, people that offend against children, plus people that hurt women, are, are seen as like the lowest of the low in the prison hierarchy. So right. He was getting, he was getting attacked, punched randomly, and the stress of all of this made him psychotic. Which, as I said before, is very unusual for somebody in their fifties to become psychotic. It's usually mm. sort of in your late teens, early twenties, but it does happen. Could it be the punching to the head that's caused that as well, uh, or not? Probably, possi possibly, but I think it's probably more likely the stress mm. and the fact that he probably actually generally felt that his life was. Under, under that's a lot to happen very quickly yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's in prison so it's not like yeah you can hide so him. much so, has changed yeah, yeah. Uh, so he became psychotic and he had this delusional belief that 
So he didn't eat his own eyeballs, but he believed that other prisoners wanted to remove his eyeballs and eat them because he thought that that would give them the superhuman strength that would let them break out of prison. And so he thought that they would kill him to get his eyeballs. So the only way that he could stop this happening was to remove his eyeballs himself and give it to the prisoners because then they wouldn't kill him. So he genuinely believed that. And he uh, removed one of his eyeballs with a plastic knife and then that snapped, so he couldn't use it for the second one. And he removed the other one with his, uh, with his fingers. Oh, he managed to remove both yeah. as well. Oh, no. And the, uh, so he was in a segregation unit, uh, the seg unit. I know you talked to, to Vanessa about that. Um, so one of the nurses actually literally saw him do this, but she very reasonably didn't want to go into the room because this guy's really, really dangerous. Yeah. So by the time she called like the, the riot squad and they got kitted up, they got kitted up in about eight minutes, which was actually pretty good i think mm. you know that to run from other parts of the prison by the time they entered the cell he'd already that's long enough for him to do it yeah but he was trying to see the prison for not psychiatrically assessing him properly as in they should he should have been like you know um probably probably wouldn't have been sectioned because it takes weeks it takes months to get somebody in mm. the hospital but he could have at least been taken to healthcare you know he could have been given medications it, is that case kind of a perfect example why you do what you do because prisons aren't f- equipped to be able to deal with patients or well, rather than, I, I guess, rather than a prisoner, a patient in a way. Yeah. So is it, is it just really important to you to go like the, this is not the right place for this person yeah. to be. They yeah, need yeah. help. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say in that one particular case, and this was my finding for my assessment, it couldn't have been prevented because <clears throat> he was actually very guarded and he wasn't really letting on to his paranoid beliefs. So he, this happened, I can't remember, I think it was on a Sunday and the very first time that he complained of any problems was on a Friday. So this happened within the space of two days. Wow. And I he think, went straight to the extreme. Yeah, I think he was psychotic a few days before then, but he didn't tell anybody. So like, a, as, as you said, they wouldn't know if he's paranoid. He's not yeah, going to want to tell exactly, anyone. Yeah. Is there, is there a chance that because he's in prison, he's he's getting involved in drugs like Spice and stuff like that? Uh, yeah, there's a chance. But they, we do urine tests on uh, most individuals when they present like that. And he didn't have anything in his urine in this particular case. Yeah. And also, I don't think the other prisoners would have giving him drugs actually they might have done for money but they certainly weren't helping them out let's put it that way how how, how common is sort of self-harm um when people are suffering uh so it's pretty common in the patient group that i see so about 10 percent of, of everybody with schizophrenia ends up taking their own lives that's a really high proportion wow yeah um obviously because i work in secure units i see people who are more prone to violence than suicide but it's absolutely uh, higher pretty high in my patient cohort yeah. do do they tend to choose to go violence on themselves because they're worried of doing it on other people or is it a mix of uh so th- there are absolutely some people who do self-harm and internalize their frustrations themselves absolutely but again they're not the people that i see because because to come into one of my units you have to have a history of violence what's been an extreme case of self-harm we're going to put a disclaimer at the start so people already know but have you seen some bad stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So two things immediately uh, come to my mind. Two cases. One was <clears throat> actually a woman who, who took her own life uh, in a psychiatry unit that I was working in. So this was when I was a very junior doctor and um, it was in Edinburgh actually. And so this kind of came out of nowhere. So she was in her 40s. She had two teenage children and she got really unwell really quickly. So she was within a space of like a couple of months. She'd gone from functioning pretty normally she she had this cancer diagnosis but it was like well actually no she had a cancer scare but she was actually clear with the scans but for some reason that triggered something she became obsessed she didn't believe that she didn't have cancer she thought she did um and then it just sort of sent her down a spiral i think she wanted to end her life before in her head she was going to die from cancer right hung herself on on a ward um we 
there's a rotor of like junior doctors that work the night shift. You don't really have to do that much unless there's an emergency like this mm. on that night. Uh, and I got called and to the warden, she, she, she was dead. She'd hung herself with a kettle cord. And the reason that it really stands out to me, obviously, mm. apart from what happened, was that I had to tell her husband what had happened. So her husband called, called, the husband got called in. Usually the consultant does it, but she, the consultant on call, lived too far away. So he was there and wanted to speak to somebody. And I, I thought it was unfair to, to make him wait for the consultant for like another hour. So I had to go and tell him. That was like really emotionally charged for me. I bet. Yeah. I bet. I bet that never gets easier as well. Yeah. And one thing that really kind of sticks out from that experience is I remember <clears throat> only like a week before, two weeks before telling him that she would get better because I, uh, I really thought that she would. Yeah. Uh, and I just felt like a nice thing to say to him at the time. So I said that. And I remember thinking sitting there in the room, like I remembered saying that to him. And I yeah. Sort of just to you can never him. foresee something like that happening, can you? Yeah. Really? Like, um, what again in your notes you said about seeing two defendants with eerily similar presentations yeah what do you mean by that um the you mean the people who committed murder who'd, who'd shot themselves that one yeah 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 so this is just a strange coincidence they were both within a year of each other i think uh they just happened to be really similar so one had killed uh multiple partners it's the third third female partner they killed uh, once the police couldn't really prove what happened because there was very little evidence. He said it was in self-defense. And I think, I don't think they, they prosecuted him properly, to be honest, but he got a very short sentence. The second time he got a psychiatric defense, this was years before I saw him and he was in a psychiatric unit for many years. Was this in the UK? Yeah, yeah, right. London, yeah. And the third time was when I assessed him. So I saw him in Belmarsh <clears throat> and he basically attacked his partner with a, with a hammer and killed her. And then he tried to commit suicide straight afterwards. So he jumped in front of a bus and uh, ended up becoming sort of paraplegic, had his legs, uh, his, his arms and his legs had to be amputated because of the severity of the injuries. So I saw him in Belmarsh uh, and it was just very surreal to see somebody who'd done something so horrific, you know, but looked actually pretty vulnerable. Like he was in his 50s, wow, yeah. small, slight man without any limbs. And it was just really hard to piece together what he'd done versus what he saw in front of you. Uh, but I didn't think he had a psychiatric defense. I didn't think he knew exactly what he was doing. And then about a year after that, <clears throat> I saw a farmer who had, uh, was a bit depressed, was splitting up with his wife. She was with another man. He saw them together in a pub. They all lived in a pretty small kind of village. So everyone kind of knew each other. Saw them together in a pub, <clears throat> followed her home, shot her with a shotgun in front of their teenage son, then turned around and tried to kill himself with a shotgun, put it in his mouth. And, but instead of killing himself, he just like blew the side of his face off. So... When I saw him in a prison in Manchester, he was like yeah, completely deformed. He'd had surgery and stuff. He'd been prison, uh, in prison. He was in prison, but he'd been in hospital for several weeks for for, the, for, the, for his injuries. But he couldn't like he couldn't speak. He was like communicating through like an iPad to me. So. Is that hard for you to be able to kind of like is it diagnose like someone with if they're just talking to you through a screen? <laughs> you know what? It was. It's not that I can't get the symptomatology. It's that it's so slow. It was like frustratingly slow. Oh, yeah. Like obviously, I don't want to be a dick and rush it. But at the same time, it's like I'd ask one question and it would take him like, you know, four or five minutes just to type up the answer. But two, you know, what he did is horrific without question. But two, I was going to say to his credit, I don't know if that's the right phrase, but to be mm. fair to him, he said from the beginning that there's no psychiatric defense. I really regret what I did. It was, you know, I was in a jealous rage. He was a bit drunk at the time. I wish I was dead. You know, there's, right. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to absolve responsibility. I did it. I was was the guy who jumped in front of the bus open or was he trying to go down there? I think he was trying to exaggerate a lot of his depression. And I mean, that's fine. He, he might be depressed. He might not, but, and I think he probably was, but that's not what's important to me. What's important to me is, did he know what he was doing at the time? And he clearly mm. did. And, and, and finally, <clears throat> um, can you tell us the, the, the story of a man trying to catch a flight? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is just, 
I've got, I'd never laugh at a patient, but this is this this, this scenario. This yeah. was was quite amusing for me. Mm-hmm. He had these psychotic uh, beliefs that he had loads of grandiose ideas, and one of them was that he was going to go to Africa. Um, I think it was the country of origin of his family because he wanted to fight various wild animals, and he had like a this this vision of fighting this bear, and he was literally going to do it. Like he was acting very bizarrely in uh, Heathrow, I believe it was, and that's why he was stopped, and the police officers were talking to him, and they thought there was something wrong with him, and then it turned out he had this like long history of like other violent incidents that all happened so he got resectioned into our hospital but the reason that that kind of stands out to me was because one of his many bizarre delusions was that he had like this his urine had special powers so he would just basically piss on his clothes and then like leave them in different parts of the ward to, to like ward off evil energy and evil spirits oh wow um, so that was just a weird thing to like go into work every day wow just, i bet i bet you've read some unusual. and and there was some surreal things you you mentioned there was two <clears throat> different categories at one at one point there was psychosis and psychosis and neuroses yeah. that one and and the psychosis one <clears throat> is when people aren't aware that they have a mental illness yeah if is is it possible for somebody to go through a state of um uh, being psychotic for a while, then come out of that and then look back on that state and know that they were different then. Yeah. And um, so, yes, absolutely. So, for example, you have drug-induced psychosis. Like if you um, smoke certain too much really strong cannabis or take speed, as I said before, other those are the substances that cause it more than anything else. So that is a temporary period of psychosis. Uh, and you can come out of that fairly quickly once it's left your system. As to whether you, so usually people that I've talked to, they have very patchy kind of memories. It's kind of being in, a bit like in a dreamlike state. I suppose it's not too different for being like blind drunk. I mean, I'm not saying the same thing's not, but it's mm. similar in that you vaguely remember what was going on, but it doesn't feel like it was you. It feels like a different experience. Right. This doesn't kind of follow on from any of that, but I'm intrigued by it. We've spoken about um, like psychopaths, sociopaths, um, messiah complex and all that we touched very quickly on narcissism yeah. being a narcissist is that like what kind of level is that within everything because we we use it quite openly going oh yeah, he's yeah. just narcissistic like kind of like as a way to insult someone in a way but is, is there something more serious and yeah, yeah. deeper within that yeah absolutely so narcissistic as an adjective doesn't necessarily mean that much that's just describing something that's a bit up themselves but narcissistic personality disorder is a psychiatric diagnosis right so like all personality disorders if you're if your traits are so extreme that it affects your functioning in your relationship, then by definition, you have that diagnosis, right? So a not, somebody with narcissistic personality disorder is not only really grandiose, but they constantly seek reassurance. They cannot tolerate any form of criticism and they completely lack empathy for people around them. In a different way to psychopaths, they don't want to hurt you, but they just don't care about you and your problems. So if you've got somebody, a friend who's a proper narcissist or has narcissistic PD, they are the kind of person that always brings drama. They will, like, you try and tell them about your day, your problems, and the conversation will very quickly turn around to them and their problems. They kind of absorb all the emotion out of any situation. So somebody that does that to the degree that they can't hold down normal relationships, or they can't hold down you know, job a job or can't function properly, that's narcissistic personality disorder. Could, could we could we finish real quickly about... Um, two two uh, real life cases, um, which I'm I'm sure you, you you didn't personally work on, but just to get your opinion, Lucy Letby. Yeah, this is this is a very strange one, that yeah, isn't it? it? Is very what, what what's your thoughts on that? What's going on there? Yeah. yeah. So I've, I've I've been on um a couple of news programs, and basically everybody has asked me why did she do what she did? Mm. That's the ultimate question. And the honest truth is, Jack, is I don't know. What I can say is that she doesn't fit into any category that's that's typical for somebody that does something like that. So obviously, 
for to be a caregiver and to take the life of, of uh, innocent babies itself is is pretty horrific. So you have to kind of you know lack empathy, obviously. Um, but what surprises me is there's there's no psychopathology to go on. There's nothing odd about her or her personality that we know of. So she didn't have any problems with her work colleagues. She was actually seen as quite a conscientious nurse before any of this happened. Mm. She doesn't have a history of trauma. She doesn't have issues with relationships, whether romantic or friendship. She doesn't. She's not someone that falls out with people. So she doesn't have any of the sort of red flags or warning signs of somebody that would commit such a level of violence. She wasn't exposed to violence, as far as we know, no. when she was younger. So to me, it's a bit like being presented as someone at Lab Bible as well. It's a bit like being presented with a dead body as a pathologist without any injuries and somebody asking me, how did this person die? I don't know. I, I do not know what's... Um, I cannot see or fathom why she did what she did. My best guess is that she's somehow jealous of other families and other family units because it's something that she didn't have herself. But that in itself doesn't even. Because she had time to still get that. Yeah, it doesn't. That doesn't explain. Lots of people feel that, but people want to do that. So I don't know. I don't don't know if I'm oversimplifying it, but that sounded more towards the Bundy side of things that you were saying, like how he seemed completely normal to everyone else, but wanted to go and do these horrific things. Yeah. But you can kind of like Bundy's getting something out of it though. Mm. Like, do you you know what I mean? she, She hasn't been diagnosed with anything, has she? No, I think she had a bit of anxiety and a bit of depression during the trial, uh, but not. Not, nothing that's first of all severe and secondly that would have yeah isn't that just what and what most people would have if they yeah because I'd, I'd literally just read that apparently she's cozying up in prison with um another child murderer and becoming yeah. friends of one what what i really like about you and and i'm not sure if it's your whole profession that's like this is the fact that you're sitting here saying i don't know you're not being you're not thinking i'm a forensic psychiatrist i should have an answer to this yeah yeah is that common in 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 your work that there there are cases and times when you're just like I, we we don't know is it socrates that said that the the true knowledge is knowing that you know nothing um <laughs> you think i know the answer to that <laughs> you think you know socrates yeah. <laughs> he thinks he's a footballer yeah, yeah. yeah we call it football over here mate <laughs> the old defender for arsenal <laughs> um so i think uh, well, f- first of all, I'd like to think I'm not so egotistical that I, that I feel like I have to be right all the time, but I know the answer to everything because I don't. Mm. Um, number one. And number two, to be a good expert witness, you get cross-examined by the barrister from the other side, right? If you're a defence, you get cross, uh, cross-examined by the CPS mm. and vice versa. And you are setting yourself up to be professionally embarrassed if you're very arrogant and if you think that you know the answer to something that you don't know. So <clears throat> when I'm doing a court report, I will say either if I don't know the answer to something, I'll, I'll say it. So, for example, say if Joker was a hypothetical real patient of mine, I would mm-hmm. say this is a neurological disorder and I, I can't comment on this. Uh, because if I get cross-examined and they say, tell me about this disorder, and then I rattle on five minutes, what training have you had in neurology? You know, uh, Name me one paper that you've written about this disorder. And then I'd be like torn to shreds basically so yeah you shouldn't never overstep your mark as an expert mm-hmm. witness uh but also because sometimes i think there's there's a gray area so for example if i if i think if there's a, a case where i think there's some indications that somebody was psychotic but there's also equally some indication that maybe they weren't what i do and i think a good expert witness should do is i put down all my workings like mass gcse so i'll say these are the things that are for that my my um theory and these things that are against it this is a reasonable range of opinions and this is where my opinion lies on that for these reasons I'm kind of used to doing that. So if you think like that, your point is not to be right or to win a case. Your purpose is to explain what the court doesn't know. Super fascinating. Does that mean you have to be overly cautious slash worried that if you're being cross-examined, there's a chance that this um, prosecutor will kind of stand there and go, well, actually, 
on the Happy Hour podcast, you said this. So is there a chance that they'll look into your YouTube channel? Like the second they know you're going to be on the bench, they're going to search yeah. your name. They're going to see that you've been on this podcast, that you've done this YouTube video. They're going to analyze everything you've ever said. Mm. So do you have to like make sure you're like, okay, I need to make sure I'm saying things correctly. Can we just edit out this entire interview? <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, I don't know. I suppose it's possible. Yeah, there's no there's no re- legal reason why they wouldn't be. Able to. Yeah, because I guess the more you do public things like lad, lad Bible and stuff, that they've then got this stuff that they can look at and go, yeah. well, you're saying this in court, but you said this. Obviously, you're you're not. You're sticking to your guns and you're saying exactly how you feel about things. But mm. I guess there could then be that worry. Yeah. You're thinking, delete the YouTube channel. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's possible. Yeah. A, a case that Fiona is, is fascinated by, and, and I will admit I don't know much about it, but she's asked me to ask you, okay. is um, Gypsy Rose Blanchard. Have you heard yes, of this? I have, yes. Yeah, she's yeah, just yeah. been released from prison. She's been, yeah, yeah, and... and um, she, she she has a Munchausen or Munchausen yeah, yeah. by Munchausen proxy. proxy. Yeah. Well, what what what's that? What is that? So I have actually made a video about this a long time ago. So I can't remember all the details well, but mm-hmm. uh, but I can tell you what what that disorder is. So it is basically where somebody so Munchausens is where you fake mental illness. Uh, sorry, you fake illness, usually physical illness, but you do it because you want to be in the victim or the patient role, I should say. So you like the attention that you're getting. You like. Uh, people, you, you take on the role of being sick so that people can give you sympathy and empathy around you. And typically, if you don't get what you want from hospitals, like you don't get the diagnosis that you want, you fake things. So you consciously uh, f- like fake blood test results or you fake your own injuries or you injure yourself or you doctor shop. So you, if a doctor says like, you know, you've been here five times and I've told you there's nothing wrong with your abdominal pain, then you go to another hospital you might even change your name so that you get lost in the system. So much as in by proxy is all of that, but you do it to somebody else, typically uh, a mother doing it to a child. Um, and why, why would the mother want that? I can understand why the individual would want the attention. Yeah. Why would the mother want that? I think they, they just like the attention by proxy, for want of a better word. So they like oh. the attention because they're, they're still very much part of it, isn't it? Especially mm. if the child's quite young, they're the person that, that is still getting called and is part of... The whole process so that was her case wasn't it so her mother did it to her to yeah. gypsy rose blanchard convinced that she was poorly she, yeah. gypsy then maybe convinced her boyfriend to kill her own mum yeah, yeah which he's now in prison for yeah but she's now been released even though she convinced i'm not 100 percent on it but it does seem a bit strange she's well, now blowing up online isn't well, she? she's, she's in prison by proxy isn't she <laughs> <laughs> but she's now gained a big following people have thought like she's she's been well, posting about how she for it don't they because she, what her mother put her through was so horrific and so <clears throat> torturous mm. a lot of people i mean you know i made a video about her years ago and, and some of the youtube comments were you know i'd have done exactly the same thing mm. or, or just said very nasty derogatory things about the mom more than much more than about Jesse. but then she's done this with the boyfriend and she's now left prison and got with a new guy so that other guy's done that for her and yeah. he's just in prison madness that's all a bit strange isn't it strange. as expected from what, all of these cases what what what's uh catatonia catatonia it's actually a there's a, a welsh rock band called catatonia but that's not okay <laughs> that's what jack was asking about actually yeah, yeah. that's a coincidence uh so catatonia is a very rare Uh, psychiatric disorder so it's associated with either intense schizophrenia or really severe depression and it's where somebody completely loses their movement and their volition so there's different forms but the 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 more interesting form i think i've seen it twice in my career yeah twice uh is where you get somebody who just absolutely cannot move so they're literally stood still as a board and there's a thing called waxy flexibility so if you change their limbs into a different position they'll stay there 
So if you have somebody in the catatonia and you put their arms up like this and you walk away, they'll just literally stay there. And this is a real yeah. thing? Yeah, it's a real thing. It's very, very rare nowadays because it usually happens when somebody's untreated for, for months and months and months. So usually people, when they're becoming unwell, they'll be, get assessed and they'll get treated. So it used to happen a few decades ago. You very rarely see it now. Um, uh, but I've seen it a couple of times and it is, is very fascinating and quite terrifying to watch because I've seen... Uh, one of the times I didn't, I didn't get to see him very, very much because I was just like visiting another clinic. But the second time was in a, one of these secure units. So this guy had set a fire a couple of months before, had gone to prison and became catatonic whilst he was in prison. And he got taken to our ward and he was literally getting spoon fed by the nurses because he wouldn't move. Like if, if you left him in his chair, he would he would not get up to eat or to use the toilet. He would How rot. How long? Why just stay forever? Uh, no, you can you can medicate it, so it actually responds relatively quickly to medicine. So antipsychotics typically take four or six weeks to work. In Catatonia, they tend to be a bit quicker. It's normal. Oh, okay. When when they're in that state, how how are they with their eyes? Are they are they following you around the room? Are they blinking? Absolute dead stare. Yeah. Into well, can they they can yeah. can they blink? Uh, I think they probably could if you were like I've never tried to like blow into their eyes. No, really. yeah. <clears throat> if you did that, but if you're interested, I've got um I've got a reaction video on my YouTube channel to somebody who's got Catatonia. So I'm like. It's, it's quite a viral video, the original video, but I've just like comment on all the different symptoms. Like, so, Do, oh, does man. that mean they don't feel discomfort? Because like you said, if you lifted their arm up, it would just stay yeah. there. I can hold my hand up for a little bit of time, but as soon as it starts to feel uncomfortable because the blood's obviously moving down the wrong way, whatever, like I, I need to bring it down. Like, yeah. Would they just keep it yeah, there? just keep it there. Yeah. For, but, well, I guess if, but, they're, if they're not going to eat because they're, they're not feeling discomfort oh, oh. of being hungry, or if they're feeling it, their brain's not registering it correctly. And, and, and would they just go to the toilet? It's then? almost, yeah, they'd, they'd probably saw themselves. So it's a bit like being in a coma, but being... Like, Awake to it. Yeah, oh, it's like a, the sleep paralysis. Yeah. yeah. It's constantly there. And finally, Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. What is that? So that is something that's also very, very rare. It's usually a reaction to like a kidnapping situation. And it's quite hard to understand psychologically. I think my, the best way that I could describe it is when somebody goes through a, a terrifying, life-threatening situation mm. uh, and they're shown a tiny bit of kindness or they, they, they genuinely think they're going to die and then the relief and not dying because your kidnapper is, shows you a bit of kindness. Right. You become emotionally connected uh, to it. And the reason I, it's called Stockholm Syndrome, I believe, is because lots, or not lots, but a few people from a particular bank robbery that occurred in Stockholm decades ago had this symptom and they're actually defending the bank robbers. So they were trying to, like, they were refusing to give testimony and they were trying to, like, excuse the, the, uh, the behavior of the bank robbers. Wow. This has been absolutely <laughs> fascinating, mate. What's 2024 got in store for you, Dr. Beth? Um, 2024, I'm going to continue my, my medical legal criminal work because it fascinates me and I'm going to try and muscle my way into the YouTube world if I can. Love it. And, and once again, tell our listeners and our viewers where they can check out your stuff because I've dipped in and out and it's, uh, it's, 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 it's this, but on steroids. And you don't have to have us on it. <laughs> you so. don't have to. Have, you, yeah, yeah. It's us, but without all the stupid parts. Yeah, yeah. There's less questions about porn. <laughs> <laughs> That's his next video. Yeah, where, where can people find it? Uh, so my YouTube channel is called A Psych for Sore Minds. Great I, name. I, I set a whole uh, smorgasbord of issues to do with mental illness and offending, like individual cases that we've talked about and sort of broad topics. And I've got a book. Um, I've actually bought you a copy as a gift. Oh, uh, amazing. Thank Into you. Minds, uh, which is similar to the kind of cases we've discussed. So my own mm. personal cases, I anonymize them and just talk, talk the reader through the journey of what it was like to be a forensic psychiatrist. Thank you so much <laughs> for coming on, mate. This has Thank been you. Jackmate's Happy Hour podcast with me, Jackmate, Stevie White and Shoham Das. What is, we ask everyone this, just to finish, what is the meaning of life? 
<laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think the meaning of life is to fill, fulfill your own potential and your potential changes depending on what you've done before you. So it's different for different people. So I've got a meaning of life right now, which might be to do with my media. You've probably got slightly different goals. So it is not just to sit on your laurels and do the easy thing and take the path of least resistance, but to push yourself and do something that you really want to do, but but is quite easy to get discouraged from doing. What an answer. That was a lovely answer. He's too smart for us. Bring on the YouTubers. <laughs> do you watch porn? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Jack Mate's Happy Hour.